Welcome, brothers and sisters, to the Parable of the Vineyard YouTube channel. My name is Adam Fink, your host, and today we have a special broadcast, the debate surrounding First Enoch, which has been a hot topic within the body of Messiah. The question that will be debated tonight is, is First Enoch inspired scripture? Joining me is Sean Griffin at Kingdom Context, who will be arguing for the affirmative, it is inspired scripture. Hi, thank you for having me, Adam, and uh, appreciate you hosting this debate. Um, thank you, David, for agreeing to this debate. I think it's a really, really fun topic, and it's really good for people to hear. Thanks, brother, for joining us. And also a warm welcome to David Wilbur from his channel with the same name, David Wilbur. And many of you may know him from 119 Ministries. However, be it known that the views shared by David tonight does not reflect 119 Ministries, but that of his own. And he will be arguing for the negative. It's not inspired scripture. Uh, welcome, brother David. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here with you both to discuss this important topic. Welcome, brother. Welcome. So before we begin, I must say I'm personally excited for this discussion because so often with debates, we see men or women with completely different worldviews deliberating a matter. However, tonight, we have two brothers who share many similar core beliefs, including faith in Messiah Yeshua and a desire to keep his commandments, which is so rare these days. Sean and David simply differ on opinion of this book, as do many within the body. Whatever is said today, take to prayer and let the Spirit of the Most High guide you to what is the truth. So, enough from me. Let's get right into it. The format for the debate tonight is a 20-minute opening argument by each, then a 10-minute second argument by each, followed by a third 10-minute argument by each, then a 10-minute cross-examination by each, followed by four questions that will be answered by each, uh, which were selected from the audience, and finally, a five-minute closing statement by both David and Sean. David will be going first tonight, so brother, the honor is yours. So let me get my timer started, and we will uh, get started tonight. And gentlemen, I will be giving you guys uh, a 60-second warning, a one-minute warning, before your time is up. So, uh, David, the floor is yours. All right. Well, first, I'd like to thank Adam for hosting and moderating this debate. I'd also like to thank Sean for engaging me on this important topic. I want to say up front that my, I respect my friend Sean and his desire to know the truth. Our mutual desire to know the truth of God is what brings us together today. So what is the truth? Well, as Sean and I both agree, God has chosen to reveal his truth to us through sacred writings. He has inspired men to transmit divine revelation about who he is, who we are, and how we relate to him. And that revelation is in the form of what we call scripture. So the question of which writings make up inspired scripture is important because it has a direct impact on what we believe about God and our role as his people. For example, Sean and I both agree that the Book of Mormon is not inspired. It does not give us the truth about God, therefore it is not a reliable source for theology. We only want to get our theology, that is our beliefs about God, from sources that are truly inspired by God. With that said, let me state up front that I actually really love the book of First Enoch. I think it's a fascinating collection of Jewish writings that gives us valuable insight into the Judaisms of the Second Temple era. However, I do not consider First Enoch to be inspired scripture like I consider 
consider Daniel, Jeremiah, or Isaiah to be inspired scripture. We know that the patriarch didn't, uh, the patriarch Enoch didn't write First Enoch. No legitimate scholar says that he did or that he even could have. For instance, it contains anachronisms and it has clear marks of having a setting within the Hellenistic world with its use of pagan mythological motifs and preachments against Gentile oppression, for example. So to put it simply, First Enoch is known as pseudepigrapha, meaning literature falsely attributed to a figure in the past, in this case, Enoch. And this was a very common type of Jewish literature in the Second Temple era. It's among many other Jewish writings composed between 200 BC to 200 AD. Now, the fact that First Enoch is pseudepigrapha does not make it worthless. It's still a valuable primary source if we want to learn about the social history, the beliefs, and the internal debate between the different Judaisms of that period. First Enoch can be very valuable, but only if we appreciate it for what it is. When we make it out to be more than what it is, we fall into error, and that is what I think happens when we think of First Enoch as inspired scripture. So in this debate, I'll be defending two contentions. Number one, there is no good reason that First Enoch should be considered inspired scripture. Number two, there are good reasons that First Enoch should not be considered inspired scripture. So I'll leave it to Sean to try to refute my first contention, and then I'll respond to his arguments in my next speech. But for now, I want to focus on defending my second contention, that there are good reasons that First Enoch should not be considered inspired scripture. Number one, the Messiah did not consider First Enoch to be inspired scripture. I think Sean and I would both agree that the Messiah's definition of scripture is relevant to this debate, but the evidence points to the fact that Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus Christ, did not consider First Enoch to be inspired scripture. Let me explain. The biblical canon of Yeshua's day had a threefold division known as Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, that is the law, prophets, and writings. That was and is the shape of the Old Testament canon of scripture. It is known by the acronym Tanakh, and the contents of this canon match the Old Testament canon in our Protestant Bibles. This threefold canon is referenced not only in the New Testament, but also throughout other Jewish literature well before the time of Christ. For instance, Ben Sira, the author of the apocryphal book, The Wisdom of Sirach, had a grandson who translated his grandfather's writings into Greek around 130 BC. This translator, Ben Sira's grandson, wrote his own prologue to his translation, wherein he makes reference to this threefold shape of the Old Testament canon. Remarkably, the author distinguishes his grandfather's writings, that is, the wisdom of Sirach, from, quote, the law itself and the prophecies and the rest of the books, end quote. So that is the law, prophets, and writings. So we see that by 130 BC, the books contained in this threefold canon were already widely considered to be uniquely sacred and distinct from any additional writings, including the apocryphal writings. As far as we know, no manuscript or historical evidence indicates that pseudepigrapha, such as First Enoch, were ever accepted as part of this threefold canon of scripture. Neither the, neither the Greek Septuagint nor the Hebrew Masoretic text include First Enoch in their sets. In fact, in a passage from Against Appion 1-7, which was written in the 90s AD, first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote that a defined Hebrew canon already existed by his time. This confirmation 
quotation from Josephus is remarkable for several reasons. First, he acknowledges the threefold canon of the Hebrew scriptures, which is the same threefold division that we find in the New Testament and other Jewish literature. Second, Josephus limits the number of books to a specific number, 22. Five books, he says, are the books of Moses, 13 are the prophets, and the remaining four, he says, are hymns to God and precepts for human life. So there you have that threefold division. Quick side note, by the way, the Jewish canon today has 24 books, which matches the content of our Protestant canon of 39 books. The reason for the difference in number is that the Jewish canon combines books that are separated in the Protestant canon. For example, in the Jewish canon, all the minor prophets are combined into one book, but the contents of both the Jewish canon and the Protestant canon are exactly the same. Josephus's canon is believed to have also combined Ruth with Judges and Lamentations with Jeremiah, which are separated in the current Jewish canon, giving us a 22-book canon. In either case, we know that First Enoch was not part of this 22-book threefold canon, and Josephus's canon is believed to have been in place for at least 300 years prior to his writing. So the evidence we have from primary sources confirms that the biblical canon during Yeshua's day excluded first Enoch. Why is this important? Why does the Jewish canon matter? It's important because Yeshua, as the Messiah and the eternal Son of God, fully affirmed the biblical canon of his day, defining it as scripture. Luke 23, 44 says this, Then he said to them, this is Yeshua talking, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So right here, Yeshua is making a direct reference to the established biblical canon. Our Messiah endorsed this threefold biblical canon, which according to primary evidence, excluded first Enoch. This was our Messiah's definition of the scriptures. Therefore, first Enoch is excluded from Yeshua's definition of inspired scripture. Further evidence is seen in Matthew 23, uh, 35, when Yeshua speaks of all the righteous blood being poured out on the religious leaders of his day. Quote, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Scroger Roger Beckwith writes concerning this verse, quote, In all probability, this implies that for Jesus and his hearers, the canon began with Genesis and ended with Chronicles, seeing that the murder of Abel is recorded near the beginning of the former book and the murder of Zechariah near the end of the latter book. This appears to reflect the traditional Jewish arrangement of the books. End quote. So this evidence would suggest that the canon was already closed by the time of Yeshua, and between at least 130 BC to the 90s AD, there's no indication that first Enoch was ever considered to be, be part of it. Since Yeshua fully affirmed the biblical canon as scripture, his definition of scripture must be within the framework of that canon, which excludes first Enoch. My second argument is this. The teaching contained in First Enoch is in direct conflict with the teaching contained in Scripture. I'll give a few examples. First, and most significantly, First Enoch, as we have it today, teaches a false messiah. According to the book of parables, which is chapters 37 through uh, 71, Enoch is taken into heaven where he is shown prophecy 
prophetic visions concerning a future messianic figure. This messianic figure goes by several names, son of man, chosen one, anointed one, and righteous one. And the author of Parables of Enoch writes about how this messianic figure is going to fulfill all of these prophecies that we find in books like Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. For instance, in 1 Enoch 45, we see that this messianic son of man figure will sit on a throne of glory and execute judgment on the wicked. Chapter 48 describes how this figure will be a light to the nations, as Isaiah talks about. It goes on to say that all who dwell on the earth will worship him and that the righteous will have salvation in his name. Chapter 69 talks about how this messianic figure will usher in a time of peace for the righteous chosen. And then at the end of the book, uh, the parables of Enoch, we encounter an interesting passage. Enoch is taken to the, quote, heaven of heavens, where he is greeted by God himself and the archangels. It is here where we learn the identity of the Son of Man that Enoch has been seen in his visions. We are told clearly who the author of the parables of Enoch thinks the Messiah is, and it ain't Jesus. It's not Yeshua, according to the author of the parables of Enoch. First Enoch 71, starting in verse 13, Enoch is speaking. He says, And the head of days came with Michael and Raphael and Gabriel and Phanuel and thousands and tens of thousands of angels without number. And he came to me and greeted me with his voice and said to me, You are that son of man who was born for righteousness, and righteousness dwells on you, and the righteousness of the head of days will not forsake you. So Enoch is identified as the very messianic figure that he had seen in his visions. Earlier in 1 Enoch 46, the messianic son of man is described in these same terms. Righteousness dwells with him. He is born for it and so forth. So Enoch is called the son of man and is then described with the exact same attributes that were applied to the son of man of the visions earlier. Obviously, this puts the teaching of 1 Enoch in direct conflict with the teaching of the New Testament. In the New Testament, Yeshua is the messianic son of man who fulfills biblical prophecy. He's the one who will rule the world, sit on God's throne, judge, and receive worship in the world to come. Enoch and Yeshua can't be both be the Messiah. So in this case, the teaching of 1 Enoch is in direct conflict with the Bible. Now, to be fair, a 1912 translation of 1 Enoch from R.H. Charles has this verse identifying the Son of Man in the third person rather than the second person, so that it reads, this is the Son of Man, implying that Enoch is not the one being revealed as this figure, but he is being directed to a separate figure. However, Charles' translation of this verse is a known mistranslation. Apparently, Charles didn't like the idea of Enoch being identified as the Son of Man. He disagreed with it. He was skeptical for whatever reason. So he deliberately amended the text to the third person. But there is no basis in the text itself to support Charles' translation. Charles further theorized that a lost passage revealed the Son of Man figure as someone other than Enoch. Then, based on this theory, he deliberately mistranslated the Ethiopic text text to reflect a third-person rendering rather than what the text actually says. Here's what scholar Leslie Walk writes concerning Charles' translation. Quote, Charles' solution was to amend the text of 1 Enoch 71.14 to the third person instead of the second person. Thus, Charles read, this is the Son of Man, rather than you are the Son of Man. He also suggested that a paragraph which revealed the identity of the Son of Man has been lost, but this extensive emendation has no surviving textual basis 
in any of the manuscripts and for this reason is to be rejected, end quote. So Charles' mistranslation of 1 Enoch 71.14 was driven by a personal bias and a baseless theory about a missing passage in the text. For this reason, modern Enochic scholarship universally rejects Charles' translation of 1 Enoch 71.14. Therefore, we have every reason to reject Charles' mistranslation and accept the literal translation of what the verse actually says, which identifies Enoch as the messianic son of man. That, of course, presents a big conflict between 1 Enoch and the New Testament. In addition to presenting a false messiah, some other conflicts include First Enoch's negative view of the Jerusalem temple service. Scholars have argued that the story of the Watchers was intended as a symbolic rebuke of the Jerusalem temple service during the Second Temple era, which had been polluted in the mind of the author. In First Enoch 89-90, the post-exilic temple service is criticized as being illegitimate. The Dead Sea Scroll community, which likely came from the very proto-Essene movement out of which the Enochic writings originated, likewise despised the Jerusalem temple service and saw their own community as the proper substitute for the temple service. In contrast, Yeshua participated in the temple service in Jerusalem. He referred to the Jerusalem temple as his father's house. He commanded people he healed to make offerings at the temple as we see in the gospels, and the apostles continued to participate in the temple services throughout the book of Acts. Also, First Enoch chapters 71 through 82 give a detailed outline of a numerically symmetrical calendar revealed to Enoch by the angel Uriel, but this calendar is not the same as what the Torah teaches. Uh, the, Torah, uh, the Torah's calendar operates by observation rather than precise calculation. Yeshua and the apostles certainly would not have followed the calendar that is outlined in First Enoch. There are various other conflicts in addition to some pretty fanciful material in First Enoch. For instance, some translations of First Enoch 7 teach that the giants grew to about four to 5,000 feet tall, which obviously doesn't match what the Bible teaches. Biblical references to the sizes of these giants range from nine feet tall to 10 feet tall. I could go on and on, but let's move on to my third and final argument. Number three, Jews and Christians have nearly universally rejected First Enoch as scripture. This includes the smaller Jewish communities in the first century that followed the Enochic writings. We already know that both Judaism and Christianity reject First Enoch as scripture. To be fair, there were a few church fathers like Tertullian who challenged the majority view. There have been other Christians throughout the centuries who thought of First Enoch as inspired or that it should be part of the Bible, but this view has always been in the extreme minority. Some might point to the Ethiopian church, which includes First Enoch in their canon, making it the only Christian community that holds First Enoch in such a high regard. However, what a lot of people don't know is that the the Ethiopian church has a much more liberal and fluid concept of canon than the rest of Christianity. For instance, while First Enoch is included in some canons of the Ethiopian church, it is excluded in others. In 1983, the Ethiopian Orthodox Holy Synod produced a paper called A Short History, Faith, and Order of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, where they provide a list of the, quote, holy books of the Old Testament. Guess what is not included on that list? First Enoch. Not only is the Ethiopian canon fluid, but also apparently not all books included in their canon hold the same level of authority. This could perhaps be compared to how the Apocrypha is viewed within Eastern Orthodoxy. While it is part of their canon, it is generally considered to be of somewhat lower authority than the rest of the Bible. But wait, 
there's more, not even the Dead Sea Scroll community, whom we know highly valued First Enoch considered it scripture. In his book, The Old Testament Canon of the New Testament Church, Roger Beckwith demonstrates that the Essenes adhered to the three divisions of the canon and the standard count of the canonical books. Even though three of the books of First Enoch had been written by the time the Essenes split from the other Jewish communities in 152 BC, the Essenes never attempted to include the Enochic writings in their canon, but grouped them in a separate appendix to their canon. So in summary, Sean is in the extreme minority here. Not even the Dead Sea Scroll community considered First Enoch scripture, and we know they highly valued First Enoch and likely even came from the very movement out of which the Enochic writings originated. Romans 3.2 says that God entrusted the Jews with the words of God, the oracles of God. The Jews knew which writings contained the words of God, and they did not consider First Enoch to be in that category. Never do we find any disagreement between Yeshua and the apostles and their Jewish opponents in regard to the extent of the canon. They debate lots of other things, not the canon. As I've shown earlier, the Messiah and the apostles didn't consider First Enoch scripture as the Messiah's view of scripture was in accordance with the Jewish view. While there are various similarities between First Enoch and the New Testament, that does not necessarily prove that the New Testament authors were referencing or quoting First Enoch. To simply assert that the biblical authors directly quoted or referenced First Enoch based on similarities that might exist is to commit a questionable cause fallacy. All that the similarities mean is that similar ideas and traditions existed and were discussed among the Judaisms of the first century. But even if the New Testament authors quoted First Enoch like Jude possibly does, that doesn't mean that they considered the material they quoted to be inspired scripture. As Dr. Michael Heiser writes, quote, the biblical writers used external material to draw attention and make a statement. Paul quotes from pagan Greek poets. The psalmists and prophets borrow vocabulary and paraphrase material from ancient Egyptian Mesopotamian and Syrian literature. Jude quotes a book from the Pseudepigrapha. The people of biblical times knew the quoted material was not inspired, but it had meaning for them and their audience. I can give many more reasons why First Enoch should not be considered inspired scripture, but I think that these are sufficient to show that we should not consider it as such. If Sean wants to convince us otherwise, he must address the fact that Yeshua's definition- One minute, David. One minute. Thank you. If Sean wants to convince us otherwise, he must address the fact that Yeshua's definition of scripture was in accordance with the biblical canon of his day, which excluded First Enoch. He must also reconcile all the conflicts between First Enoch and the Bible. And then he must explain why his view of inspired scripture should be accepted over that of Judaism, Christianity, and even the very Jewish communities that wrote, produced, and followed the Enochic writings. I welcome that challenge. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brother David. Uh, well said, well said, Brother. And uh, so, Brother Sean, we are going to go ahead and transition over to your 20-minute opening argument. Are you ready? All right. Yes, I'm ready. Can you hear me? <clears throat> okay. All right. Thank you, Adam. And uh, thank you, David. That was, uh, that was a great uh, first, first opening presentation. Um, my presentation is simply, uh, while I may not be answering the three specific points that you would like me to answer, I will be answering them over the course of all of our segments tonight. But um, ultimately, 
what I feel most people do, which is what my brother David, I feel, does as well, is they lean on the authority of other people to, to decide for them what is considered inspired scripture. So I want to do our best tonight to, we're going to examine, and, and I know that's not always bad. Some people want to do that, and that's fine. We're going to examine tonight that facet of how canonization happened amongst uh, the Jews as well as uh, the early church fathers. But we'll also look at maybe some of the criteria they had for what they considered divinely inspired scripture to add it to this canon, even people like early religious Jewish leaders like Josephus. But there's a couple of claims that I want to address. Um, the Luke 24 claim right off the bat, just this wasn't in my notes, but just there's a little bit of um, assumption built into what Yeshua was referring to as the prophets that he explained to his disciples on the walk to Emmaus. Um, so I would need to see an actual citation that he was excluding Enoch in that conversation, since I'm going to be showing later how he uses information from Enoch. So first off, I do want to address what I think David might feel is is a rather strong point for his his argument, which is Enoch 71. Enoch 71 is um, a unique little passage because right in the middle of the passage, there's a piece of it missing. And this is a part that I think a lot of people kind of glaze over because they are looking at various translations. So what is documented is that there is a part of Enoch 71 that's not there. And supposedly this specific part is describing the Son of Man that was accompanying the head of days in this vision that Enoch has seen. And he and then Enoch turns to the angel next to him and says, well, who's that? Right. This is where then later it goes down into verses 14 through 17, where Enoch is is is. The contention comes in where one scholar says, oh, the angel says, that's you, buddy. Whereas other scholars are like, no, it, it can't. Like the vision he's seeing the angels, God, the father and the Messiah figure. It, it can't be Enoch because Enoch is a human a born mortal, born of a woman. Um, and that's where I would hope people would pay attention to the overall context of Enoch itself, because Enoch himself was a man born of a woman. His his father was Jared. His grandfather was Mahalalel. So he's a descendant of Adam, the Messiah. It's explained consistently throughout, even in the passages of Enoch 45 and 47 and 48, excuse me, um, that that uh, my brother David mentioned. The Messiah figure is described as someone that who is with the head of days before the sun and moon were created. Enoch is never described like that. So no matter what translator is coming in and trying to say, well, that's an improper translation of the Greek. It should say this. It should say that. They're missing the overall context of the entirety of the book. Nowhere in the entirety of the book does it claim that Enoch is the Messiah figure being spoken of outside of that suspect translation that comes right after a missing passage in the text. Now, until someone can actually look at the Aramaic, the full Aramaic text that was found, that is privately held, that was sold for millions of dollars, that no one has actually been able to see, test, or scrutinize, we, we're dealing with a passage that has a missing text, and now we have contention of men that are translating the very words that happen immediately right after that missing piece of context in that chapter. Um, and I don't know if my my I don't know if David was I don't know if you were trying to make a, an argument over the beginning of Enoch seventy one where it says that he was translated his spirit went to the heaven of heavens. Um, I'm not sure if that is a contentious issue. I don't think it should be. Most of there's a lot of prophets, even in the canons, like, for example, in Revelation 1, John, he spirit was translated. I believe it's in Revelation chapter 4. So this is a common idea where their body's not going anywhere. They're just having a vision, and that's why they're describing it as their spirit's being translated to a place where their body can't go, which would be 
the heaven of heavens, which according to Enoch and Genesis would be the firmament of firmaments where the Most High would dwell. So I think that's interesting. But I want to point out real quick in Enoch 71 the language that's used because we have some very interesting ideas about how these archangels are there as well as the head of days and this Messiah figure who's the one that is accompanying the head of days. And if we go back to Enoch 46, which I think is very peculiar that my brother David did not mention Enoch 46 in his supplementary argument against Enoch 71 because in Enoch 46 verses 1 through 8, we have the almost nearly verbatim description of what he's seen in Enoch 71. And the Son of Man, there's no discrepancy over the, over the translations about who the Son of Man is in this particular chapter. Real quick, he says in verse 1, And I saw one who had the head of days, his head was white, light, white wool. With him was another being whose countenance had the appearance of a man, his face was full of graciousness, the holy angels. And I asked the angel who went with me and showed me all things concerning that Son of Man, who he was and where, whence he was and why he went with the head of days. And he answered and said to me, This is the Son of Man who has righteousness, with whom dwells righteousness, and who reveals all the treasures of which is hidden, because the Lord of Spirits has chosen him, whose lot has the preeminence before the Lord of Spirits and uprightness forever. This Son of Man, whom you have seen, shall raise up, the kings and the mighty from their seats and the strong from their thrones and shall loosen the reins and strongs and break the teeth of the sinners. Guys, he's repeating Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 through 12 and, and many other places. And he shall put down the kings from their thrones because they do not extol praise and humbly acknowledge whence the kingdom was bestowed upon them. I mean, this is day of the Lord stuff he's talking about when the second coming of the Messiah happens. Enoch is never described as that in the book of Enoch. And the, the day of the Lord passages that are being uh um, attributed to this Son of Man character in Enoch 46 are consistent with the Day of the Lord passages and references all throughout the book of Enoch, all 108 chapters of this collection that's called First Enoch. And never once is it attributed to a human man, but it is to the Son of Man who is in this particular passage, the Son that was with the Father before the sun, moon, and stars were created, who is then sent forth as his agent. So this is a, this is a huge point of context that I feel maybe those translators have overlooked, and that would that would be, you know, par for course if you're trying to, you know, press a, a various modern translation um, and get people off of an old established translation. So real quick, though, with my remaining time, I want to address um, just the idea of canon, because I think that's really important for people to understand. I mean, because sometimes it's, it's just taught to us, um, whether directly or indirectly, through assumption that we should cling to the authority of an ancient rabbi or an early church father for what we consider a complete list of books commonly referred to as a canon. Now, some scholars, um, they there is no date exactly decided upon a Hebrew canon. And I I uh, applaud my brother David for trying to put together a what he feels is a logical, conclusive argument for what he believes was already an established canon before Christ came. But yet no scholar technically gives a date for what that is. Nor in his, in his if you, you have to listen carefully, there's a lot of assumption built in to this argument, especially about Josephus and what he already considered. Yet, Yes, Josephus may have talked about a three-part collection of books, a, you know, the, the prophets, the, the law, and the writings, but yet none of those books are defined. The, the books of the prophets are not defined. And here's the fun part. Even if Josephus, who was a Pharisee, even if he did define those, I'm going to break that down as why he should be suspect as well, just as a lot of the writings of Josephus and the authority that people give him should be very, very questions as well. So, What's interesting is in AD 170, there was a canon, the, uh, the Muratorian canon that came up, but yet they wanted to, in this canon, they wanted to exclude the book of Hebrews and the book of James. Okay, well, that sounds wild. Um, Revelation was included in that canon. This is in AD 170. So 200 years later in the Council of Laodicea, they want to put together a canon 
Um, they did keep in Hebrews and James, but they wanted to exclude the book of Revelation. I don't know if anyone can imagine what kind of conversations may have taken place in those 200 years or how you can get by in a book without Hebrews or without Revelation, but yet we have two groups of people during that time over a 20-year process that disagree on what scripture, what is divinely inspired to be able to put into a canon as authoritative. And they're trying to decide this over books like Hebrews and James and Revelation. So all I'm trying to say, and I want people to focus on, is where we are leaning on for authority. Because if we're leaning on men who may either have a, dis a dislike for a certain prophet or a certain piece of writing, you have to ask why. You have Just like I'm, I'm going to present the case here of how early Judaism and the religious leaders pre-Messiah, pre during Messiah, and post-Messiah had a strong bias against not only the law but also the, also the prophets, just as Jesus told us in the Gospels. So real quick, let's go, um, let's go to some basic guidelines. And, and unfortunately, I don't have the ability to put up on, on the camera next to me or on the, on the screen next to me these basic guidelines that I found in research that early church fathers found. These, these are the guidelines they used to determine what they thought was a divinely inspired scripture and why. Um, by the way, in case anyone's wondering, these scriptures over here, I probably should start this. These scriptures over here, um, this will just be changing periodically. This is uh, throughout my time talking on camera because this is going to be um, 120 different parallels between Enoch and the regular canon that we have in a modern America today. Real quick, guidelines early church fathers used to determine whether work was inspired. Number one, was it an apostle who wrote it or have a close connection with an apostle? Um, was it written by those acquainted with a recognized prophet or apostle? So, for example, that might be somebody like Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. Is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large in regards to its usage or its recognition? Did the book contain consistency of doctrine or teachings? And was it considered truthful in light of Deuteronomy 13? Was it considered faithful to previous canonical writings? Number six, was, it, was the writing confirmed by Christ a prophet or an apostle? And number seven, did the book bear any evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Spirit? So the good news is, um, if you're taking notes at home, of the seven things that I listed, the book of Enoch fulfills six out of seven of those things. So I'm going to make these slides available with Adam as well as um, on, my, on my own channel and on my, my social media pages on Facebook so people can look at these slides later. And I've counted throughout the entire New Testament how many places... If anyone can see this, these are all the, all the scriptural references. It's 127 places from Matthew to Revelation where the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the, the same ones that my brother David said are the ones responsible for telling you what scripture is and what scripture is not. The same religious leaders that Jesus and the apostles dealt with who were 127 places in scripture rejecting the law of God, twisting the law of God, or persecuting those who follow the law of God. Yeshua called them liars, wash tombs, murderers, thieves. He, this is not the people that I want personally to be determining for me what's inspired scripture and what is not. So thankfully, we have our own um, wherewithal to be able to read scripture and try to determine, is it inspired? Does it fall in line, which what I think those earlier qualifiers and guidelines that I read are very good. They're very good qualifiers and guidelines that we can try to determine if something looks like scripture or not. But real quick, let's look at some discrepancies, okay? Because there is a the same guys who put together the Masoretic text, which is something that my brother mentioned. A lot of people don't research the difference between the Greek Septuagint text, which was which was compiled in 250 BC, and then 1100 something years later in the ninth century 
AD, the Hebrew, well, I should say the their text from rabbis of Judaism put together what's called the Masoretic text. And there are a wealth of discrepancies, guys. There's a lot of places. And here's, here's what I want to put forward. There is a second century work, and it's not an inspired work. This is just a, an apologist's work by the guy named Justin Martyr. And he is in a specific work talking um, to a gentleman from Corinth. His name was Trypho, and this is called a dialogue with Trypho. It's uh, Justin Martyr lived in the second century from about 100 to 165 AD. And in this work, he is actually speaking to this Jewish man from Corinth about the places in the, in the scriptures that they had at their time that they knew were being edited and pulled out to hide the identity of the Messiah. Justin Martyr lived in the second century AD from the year 100 to 165. Um, he has a fam- not a famous book, but he has a book in history that he is attributed directly to him, where he's having a conversation with a with a gentleman named Trypho, a Jew from Corinth, during his lifetime, and he's addressing the places in this where and, and where the Jewish leaders of that day were taking verses out of the scriptures. Real quick, I'm going to read a part of this. This is uh, from his work. He says, "But I am far from putting reliance in your teachers who refuse to admit the interpretation by the seventy elders who are with Ptolemy, the king of the Egyptians, and is, is a correct one, and they attempted to frame another." So this is Justin Martyr speaking to this gentleman about the Septuagint translation that they all had during their day that was put together about three hundred fifty years before Justin Martyr, and he says. Um, later on, he says to carry on my discussions by means of those passages which are still admitted to you. And so here he's talking about he wants to start talking about the passages that were taken out of Scripture or altered slightly in the Scriptures to hide the Messiah. And he goes on to mention several different passages. Here's one that he that I couldn't even find in my own research, any variant of it in the book of Esdras, which, as we all know, Esdras restored in five in the fifth century B.C. He restored all the Jewish literary, literature when they came back from Babylon, from exile in Babylon. So he's actually the person we should thank for all the writings that we have, by the way. He's a, he was a pretty cool guy. But basically, he goes on to say, this particular passage was taken out of the Ezra's work. Okay, And he says, And I, sh- I shall do as I please from statements then which Ezra made in reference to the law of the Passover, which they've taken away the following. Ezra said to the people, This Passover is our Savior and our refuge, and if you understand, your heart um, has taken in it that we shall humble him on a standard, and therefore... And thereafter hope in him, and then this place shall not be forsaken forever, says the God of hosts. But if you will not believe in him and will not listen to his declaration, you will be a laughingstock to the nations. And then in Jeremiah, they've cut out the following. I was like a lamb that was brought to the slaughter. They devised a device against me, come, saying, Come, let us lay on wood on his bread, and let us blot him out from the land of living. His name shall be remembered no more. And he actually says that this particular passage in Jeremiah eleven nine was taken out of some of their manuscripts, he goes on to say, and then is left in other manuscripts. Well, I can test this in the modern Septuagint today. So I can get the Hebrew Masoretic text and I can get Jeremiah eleven nine from the Septuagint text. And I can see this passage is still in the Septuagint, but it's taken out of, of the Masoretic. So we have literal claim from the second century Christian apologist who's speaking to the religious, about the religious leaders of that day, the same guys that Yeshua and the apostles called brood of vipers, the same guys that literally murdered the Messiah, and the Messiah claimed of them that they did not believe in Moses, else they would have believed in him. He's saying those guys were chopping Scripture up in other places. If you want to know the identity of Job, <laughs> the, the Septuagint text tells us it's Job 42.17. It's an entire paragraph where the Masoretic is just a little one-liner. 
and it tells you who where Job came from. Um, he's actually how he his name was changed. It used to be Jobab, and then it was changed to Job as a result of what happened in his life. So then suddenly we can go to Genesis 36, and we can find Jobab in the Esau's genealogy. And now we know who Job was. He was actually a king of Edom. And it's it's very easy. There's... Um, um, if we want to know why Cain's offering was rejected in Enoch chapter or in Genesis chapter four, it was actually as a result of him not fulfilling the law of the tithe. He was bringing his tithe of first fruits, but he didn't bring enough of it. We only see stuff like this in the Septuagint, which was taken out of the Masoretic, and that's just a start. There's so many. Um, so the point that I hope to to bring to this um, real quick before I, I've got like a minute and a half left, but there's one more that I wanted to bring up. It's in Zechariah 6.12, specifically a prophecy about the Messiah. And here it says that uh, we all might know this passage. It's, it's pretty famous. And speaking to him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. He shall grow out of this place and shall build the temple of the Lord. Well, in the actual Septuagint, in the Greek, instead of calling him the branch, it's the word the east like northwest, east, south, it's the east. This man shall be called the east. Okay, so we also have in Numbers twenty four seventeen in the Septuagint, a prophecy um, from Balaam, of all people, when he's speaking with the king of Balak, and he says, a star shall rise out of Jacob, a man shall spring up out of Israel. So then in Matthew 2, 2, thank you, Adam. Then in Matthew 2, 2, we have the wise men coming to King Herod saying, we saw his star in the east. These guys would have known what this was about. It's so important, so important that we actually take a critical look at who are these people that are claiming this is inspired and this not is, is not inspired. Is it the Jewish religious leaders of that era who actually were claimed by our Messiah who was schooling them on Scripture and telling them everywhere I went, you guys don't know the Scriptures or you're not believing the Scriptures. Here's what they say. You're teaching the commandments of men over the commandments of Yahweh, as he does in Mark 7. I, I want to believe my Messiah. So that means I'm going to take a very critical look at a separate religion called Judaism that puts itself, it self-imposes itself as the religious group of that day, trying to impose themselves that they are the ones to claim what we should believe as Scripture and what we should not. Thank you for my time. Thank you, brother. Well said as well. And uh, Brother David, are uh, you ready for your 10-minute second argument? All right, your time has started. All right, uh, thank you again, Adam, and, and thank you, Sean, for, for that opening statement. Really appreciate it. Uh, a few things I'm going to just point out, uh, and, and I know you're, you, you plan on addressing my opening statement more in depth in your uh, later speeches, but my three points, um, you did try to address one point in my first argument about Yeshua's definition of the canon, you said that, um, you know, I, I have no right to assume or I shouldn't assume what Yeshua's definition of that threefold canon is. Well, I'm not assuming. I'm deriving uh, my conclusion from primary sources that define the biblical canon of Yeshua's day as excluding first Enoch. These are sources, as I mentioned, from the, the Greek uh uh, prologue to the translation of Wisdom of Sirach, Josephus, um, and even the Dead Sea Scroll community, which in, in all of their uh, in their canon excludes First Enoch. So I'm appealing to primary sources and uh, seeing that they exclude First Enoch, and that informs my opinion of uh, or my conclusion of Yeshua's definition of the canon as well. So. Uh, 
by the way, you, you keep, uh, you know, with respect, it seems like you're straw manning me a little bit when you say we shouldn't listen to the Jews uh, about the canon or, or because, you know, uh, Jesus and the, uh, the apostles disagreed with the Jewish leaders about the scriptures. Well, I'm not appealing to man's authority. I'm appealing to the authority of the eternal son of God, whom I argued affirmed the biblical canon of his day, which excluded first Enoch. And Yeshua and the apostles, uh, amidst all their disagreements with the religious leaders, they never disagreed with the Pharisees regarding the extent of the canon. I think that's an important point. You uh, kind of addressed my second argument, um, one of the points that I brought up in my second argument uh, regarding first Enoch 7114, when Enoch is identified as the messianic son of man that he had been seen seen in his visions. You appeal to R.H. Charles' translation, which uh, cites a missing passage um, in between uh, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 71, uh, where R.H. Charles uh, inserts the following comment. He says, lost passage wherein the Son of Man was described as accompanying, accompanying the head of days, and Enoch asked one of the angels concerning who the Son of Man was. So R.H. Charles' translation is the only translation that has this insertion in it. And all universally, scholars reject this. Uh, this is what Leslie L. Walk says in his Son of Man in the parables of Enoch and in Matthew. He says, Charles' solution was to amend the text of 1 Enoch 71.14 to the third person instead of the second person. Thus, Charles read, this is the Son of Man, rather than you are the Son of Man. Then he made the necessary changes in the rest of the text to bring it into harmony with the third person rendering. So he deliberately mistranslated it, is what the scholar's saying. He also suggested that a paragraph which revealed the identity of the Son of Man has been lost, but this extensive emendation has no surviving textual basis in any of the manuscripts, and for this reason is to be rejected. John J. Collins, who is a renowned Enochic scholar, he says the solution of Charles was to amend 7114 to read this as the Son of Man and change you to him in the following verses. This procedure has no basis in the text and is clearly unacceptable. So Charles' theory that a lost passage revealed the Son of Man figure as someone other than Enoch it's just a theory. There's no evidence for it. There's nothing in any of the manuscripts that this passage exists. And based on his theory uh, of this missing passage, he deliberately mistranslated the Ethiopic text to reflect a third-person rendering. So everybody acknowledges this. Um, so there is no, no evidence that has ever surfaced to substantiate Charles' theory on which his translation of this passage is based. So his translation is driven by a baseless theory, and for this reason, Enochic scholarship universally rejects his translation or his idea that there is this missing passage in the text as you proposed. Uh, also, earlier in First Enoch 46, I did bring this up. You said I didn't. Uh, the messianic son of man is described in, in the same terms that Enoch is described as in, in 71, and it was righteousness dwelling with them and being born for righteousness and so forth. So if we just take our literal rendering of the, the translation in 71, according to every Enochic scholar, this is Enoch that these attributes are being applied to, because Enoch is the one who is revealed as the son of man, and the messianic son of man is, is described in these same attributes in the visions earlier. Um, 
you said that no scholar agrees on when the Old Testament canon was established. Well, that's simply untrue. There is a little bit of debate on, on if it uh, was established at the close of the first century, but there are a lot of scholars that will argue that it was closed before the time of Christ. For instance, Philip R. Davies in the canon debate says, quote, with, uh, uh, with other scholars, I conclude that the fixing of the canonical list was almost certainly the, achieve the achievement of the Hasmonean dynasty. So before the time of uh, Messiah. And, and as the evidence that I pointed out earlier with the wisdom of Sirach, there is already this idea of a closed canon of scripture with text books in this threefold division that are uniquely held as sacred and distinguished from other writings, including the apocryphal writings, according to Ben Sirah's grandson. You, uh, you made the assertion that we can't really trust Josephus and what he says about the, the canon. You didn't really explain why. You just kind of threw that out there. Uh, maybe you'll, you'll explain that a little bit more in your other speeches. But you just assert this and give no reason why we should not trust Josephus. The thing is, Josephus was not personally invested in defending the canon. He didn't have a religious or an emotional investment in defending this. So he was a, an objective source of what the canon was. He was only interested in proving historically the existence of the canon in his writing. So it's not like he had some ill intent or motive as, as you accuse him of. Um, you brought up that there are a bunch of similarities and parallels between First Enoch and uh, the Bible. While I agree that there are various similarities between First Enoch and the New Testament, that does not prove that the New Testament authors were referencing or quoting First Enoch. Correlation does not imply causation. In other words, it's a questionable cause fallacy. It's better to say that the New Testament authors were familiar with concepts and ideas that are also expressed in First Enoch, and by the way, not limited to First Enoch. The ideas are all over the literature of the Second Temple Judaism era, and uh, the you know other pseudepigra uh, pseudepigrapha and apocryphal writings. These ideas were not limited to Enoch. Uh, so the New Testament authors and the authors of Enoch, for example, could be pulling from the same source. Uh, whether oral tradition or other written sources, there's no reason to assume that the New Testament authors were quoting or referencing First Enoch. And a lot of these supposed parallels uh, that, that I've seen, at least, um, are really too vague and, and broad to even declare that there's any sort of correlation there. So, uh, and, and furthermore, to add to that, lots of these supposed New Testament parallels to First Enoch can actually be found in the Old Testament. So again, there's no reason to assume that the New Testament authors were quoting First Enoch. They could have been quoting the Old Testament passages and, and developing uh, similar ideas based on Old Testament passages that seems similar to what we find in First Enoch. Uh, like I said, correlation does not imply causation. You made the point about the Masoretic texts that are corrupt and, and they exclude certain passages of scripture. Um, I would say that, um, you know, I, there, there is evidence of that, sure, but there's that's quite a leap to say that the Jews conspired to exclude Enoch from the canon because of whatever motive. 60 um, seconds, David. Thank you. 
so I would say that that argument doesn't really matter. Uh, for And also, you, you appeal to the Septuagint as including these missing passages. Well, guess what? The Septuagint doesn't include First Enoch in its set. The Septuagint also excludes First Enoch, like the Masoretic text uh, excludes it. So... Um, so that argument doesn't really hold up. You brought up this quote from from Justin Martyr, which doesn't really it isn't really convincing to me because, for instance, Justin Martyr, it's no secret that he did not like the Jews. He could have simply been falsely accusing them of these things. Justin Martyr was uh, anti-Semitic, so uh, and and you know that's no secret. He was a Christian anti-Semite and and you know asserted and assumed that the Jews had ill intent in in the things that they did. So uh, I don't find that particularly compelling. Um, you know, I, I'm much more. Uh, I would rely on Josephus. And that's time, brother. Thank you. You can go ahead and finish up your point if you if you need to. Right. I would just say that I would rely on Josephus much more than I would rely on Justin Martyr, since Josephus was more of an objective source. Thank you. Thank you, brother David. All right, brother Sean. Your ten-minute second argument. Okay. Thank you, Adam. All right. Well, I think, Brother David, I think that you've been, um, I think that your your rebuttal just now, I think, proved my main point from my first argument is that um, I feel you, yourself, and, and many others, this is what we've been trained to do in our upbringing is to lean on other people's authority. And so you've leaned on the authority to believe people like just Josephus would not be biased when, in fact, according to his own admission, he was a Jewish priest. What did I just read from the New Testament about the corruption of the priesthood during that day and their rejection of the prophets and Moses, thereby them rejecting the apostles and Yeshua himself? So their whole hermeneutic view is going to be skewed compared to what we considered an unbiased view. They did not have one. They had a very biased, biased view. And yes, I actually, I agree with you. Justin Martyr has a lot of anti-Semitic statements. I don't agree with a lot of his writings, but I think it's fascinating the claim he makes I was only pointing to the claim that he makes that the Jewish religious leaders of that day, which Josephus would be included in that group, were intentionally taking passages out and changing the scriptures to hide Messiah in the Old Testament, not in the New. So I think it's very interesting that we can now prove that. You very quickly dismissed the idea of the Septuagint not aligning with the Masoretic. Well, I think I would encourage you to study in depth the, the two differences because Yes, it doesn't matter if the, the if you know the story of how the Septuagint came to be in Ptolemy, like I read in the quote, Ptolemy organized these 70 Jewish elders to actually create this thing. That just means he didn't give them the Book of Enoch to translate among the, among the books that he did give them because the, the Greek Septuagint list of books is different from other lists and other canons throughout history. That, that wasn't my point. The point was there is evidence within the books that were translated compared to the Masoretic, which was not even collected and formed for 1,100 years later, that there's massive amounts of text missing between the two. Some of them that answer very big questions. And here's the unique thing. They're changing prophecies about Yeshua, and they're taking out other texts that disagree with the teachings of Judaism in, in their form of what is an early dispensational teaching about how the law only came through Moses, which is why they would change the text in Genesis 4 to show that Cain and Abel, or uh, Cain's offering was rejected because he didn't bring the full offering of the law of the 10th, because they don't believe that the early patriarchs before Moses were actually keeping the Torah. 
So there is a lot of evidence that would suggest that we need to carefully look at who we are leaning on for authority to say what is scripture. Um, your, your mention about uh, Ben Sirach, which, you know, I love Sirach. It's a great book. I would strongly, you know, I'm, I would just ask, where's the citation? Where, where is it where he says this is the list of the prophets of the books? He may mention a three-part collection of scriptures, but still, that, that doesn't conclude. That's To me, that's a very you know poor assumption to then immediately conclude that you know he's, he's, in, he's excluding Enoch from his list of prophets during his day, um, especially since the book of Enoch itself, found in Aramaic um, and Greek and Latin, well, the Aramaic, as we all know, is that particular one in that particular language, is going to date back to many of the other manuscripts around the 5th century BC. So Ezra restored a ton of them in the 5th century BC, supposedly all of them, according to Tertullian. Um, and this is where he claimed it was common knowledge of his day. So if we have a the oldest copy of the Book of Enoch that scholars have found dates back to the 3rd century BC, well, that's they admit that it's the oldest copy. It's not the origination. So if you were making a copy, that means you had to have an older version to make a fresh copy of. And this is just modern librarian <laughs> librarian practices is that you want to make new and updated copies, especially when they were using parchment papyrus because those aged and, and needed to be refreshed over the years. So this is what Ezra did with all the Jewish literature when he came back from, from Babylon. But real quick, I just want to make a, a quick mention here that there's, there's a bunch of other mentions, and now you mentioned a couple of things, and I'm going to get to it in my third segment about um, some different ways that Enoch is, uh, is useful as opposed to like what we need Enoch for to understand in the canon. You mentioned a couple of things that, um, that, I want to, that I want to bring up in, in this idea here of what the Dead Sea Scrolls believed and what they held in their texts. So you may claim that they had their own canon that did not include Enoch, but yet they took all the time to bury it in multiple, multiple copies that are still being found. But at the same time, they had other books that they buried. And in those other books they buried speaks about the patriarchs reading the book of Enoch. Okay. So um, I hope that folks can, can remember the list of seven things that I mentioned earlier about what, what the early church fathers even qualified to be added to a canon. And these are ideas that either lined up with previous canonical writings or um, taught the same teaching and doctrine. So here we have the Genesis Apocryphon, which is studied and highly debated. I get it. But in it, he claims that Abraham, remember when Abraham went to Egypt in Genesis 12 and Pharaoh took, um, took Sarah? Well, when Pharaoh finally gave back Sarah, it, the Genesis Apocryphon, buried with the Dead Sea Scrolls, claims that Pharaoh asked Abraham, can you please, you know, give me wisdom, <laughs> give me, help me, uh, because he was, he fell into great sin and he repented and gave Sarah back. And he, and it says that Abraham sat and read him the book of Enoch. Okay. So that's interesting. And actually that would line up with what is spoken in Enoch chapter 82 verses one through three, where that's the only place in Enoch that he calls his writings, writings of wisdom. I think that's fascinating. Uh, we also have things like, um, we have the Testament of Naphtali. We have the Testament of Levi. These are part of the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. That was a overall book that was put into the Armenian Orthodox canon in the 1600s. So that's a book that was canonized by a certain group of people. And they claim in those books multiple times, five times the book of Levi, a couple times the book of Naphtali. And then even because it's the 12 sons of Jacob all on their deathbed, giving instructions to their children and various places. 
in the entire Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs does it say, oh, and I learned this in the writings of Enoch. And this is information they're passing on to their children. And there's prophecies in, in the Testament of Levi that directly lines up with both Daniel and prophecies in Enoch. Very interesting. So there is quite a few references from other books that refer to the validity of Enoch as inspired scripture, as well as just people like Justin Martyr, as well as Tertullian himself. And real quick, I'm just going to read a short passage. Um, this is actually uh, a couple of places that Tertullian wrote about the genuineness of the prophecies of Enoch. And he says, he's aware that the scriptures of Enoch, which have assigned this order of action to angels, is not received by some because it's not admitted into the Jewish canon either. And I suppose that they did not think that having been published before the deluge, it could have safely survived that worldwide calamity, the abolisher of all things. If that is the reason for rejecting it, then let them recall to their memory that Noah, the survivor of the deluge, was the great, great son great-grandson of Enoch himself, and he, of course, had heard and remembered from domestic renown and tradition concerning his own great-grandfather's grace in the sight of God, and concerning all his preachings, since Enoch had given no charge to Methuselah than that he should hand on the knowledge of them to his posterity. Noah, therefore, no doubt, might have succeeded in the trusteeship and in his preaching, and had the case been otherwise, he would have been silent alike concerning the disposition of things made of God his preserver, and concerning the particular glory of his own house." So therefore, he goes on to say in chapter three, but since Enoch is the same scripture has preached likewise, excuse me, but since Enoch in the same scripture has preached likewise concerning the Lord, nothing at all must be rejected by us, which pertains to us. And we read that every scripture suitable for edification is divinely inspired by the Jews. It may now seem to have been rejected for that very reason, just like all of the other portions nearly which tell of Christ. Nor, of course, is this fact wonderful that they did not receive some scriptures which spoke of Christ, whom even in person speaking in their presence, they were not to receive either. To these considerations is added the fact that Enoch possesses a testimony in the apostle Jude. So he is reinforcing the idea that the Jews were taking things and ignoring scriptures and taking things out of scriptures. And he's attributing that to the reason why they rejected Enoch, in addition to his opening statement, where they rejected the idea that angels could be rebellious. Now, on my channel, Kingdom of Context, I've actually interviewed a, a rabbi. 60 seconds, Sean. Okay, thank you, Adam. I've interviewed a rabbi of Orthodox Judaism, and he said the exact same thing. He did not believe that angels could rebel, nor did he believe that angels came down in Genesis 6 and that there was anything happening. He held the same belief that we're seeing being repeated almost 2,000 years ago. The same reason why they would, would reject the book of Enoch, which so clearly tells about the rebellion of the angels. So one last thing I just want to bring up here is that we have um, this very unique book that is has 17 unique parallels, only with Revelation. I know you mentioned this idea that you're like, oh, they could have just been quoted in the Old Testament. If Well, I've studied and read the Old Testament. And my my scriptures that I'm going to make available for people on my on my channel, um, they're going to see all the Old Testament passages that I paralleled with Enoch. But there were 17 unique ones that are only unique to Revelation alone. Revelation came after Enoch is documented in history. And thank you, brother. Thank you. All right, thank you, brother Sean and uh, brother David. It is time for your third uh, your third section. Your it's another 10 minutes and. Your time is starting now. All right. Thank you again, Sean. Um, all right. So really quickly, I'll go through each of uh, the statements as I wrote them down in my notes. Um, you keep saying that I, I'm leaning on the authority of men uh, to come up with, with my definitions. And um, I, I just got to 
say with respect, uh, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not leaning on the authority of men. My primary definition of what scripture comes from comes from the authority of the Messiah, the eternal son of God, whom I've argued um, uh, defines scripture in accordance with the threefold canon. And I gave primary evidence from Wisdom of Sirach, the Greek translation, the Qumran community, which I'll get to a little bit later, and also Josephus, which defines that canon. Uh, and, and so these are primary sources that define the canon and, and that Yeshua makes a direct reference to. Also, you still haven't addressed uh, the, the uh, Matthew 23 quote, by the way, which um, uh, is another evidence that Yeshua's uh, concept of scripture, when he surveys from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, uh, it's in accordance, according to scholars, with the uh, Jewish numbering of the books uh, of the day. You brought up the point again about um, the Masoretic text being corrupted and you know how that's we therefore the Masoretic texts are untrustworthy. That's okay. You can think that the Masoretic texts are untrustworthy and that we should go by the Septuagint. That's fine. But number one, the Septuagint also excluded first Enoch. Number two, that argument is quite a leap to say that we should now therefore include first Enoch in the scriptures. I, I just don't see how that really follows. Uh, you brought up the point that the Jews corrupted the text because they, they were against the law. And we see in the New Testament that Yeshua accused them not of following the law and, and all of that. And, you know, I, I just you know, I, I don't think that they thought of themselves as being against the law. So that was an accusation from Yeshua that they were against the law. They didn't think of themselves as against the law. They thought of themselves as keeping the law. So I don't see why they would uh, have any kind of ill motivation to, to take out passages that promote the law, as you suggested. That uh, I, I, That's just not convincing to me. Um, the Ben Sira, uh, Ben Sira's grandson, you said that why should we think that his definition of the canon excludes uh, writings outside of the canon? And the reason is that he says so. He, he refers to the law and the prophets and the other books of the fathers, uh, the threefold canon, and he specifically distinguishes it from other writings. Uh, that were around at the time, uh, particularly his grandfather's writings, Ben Sirah. And this is what it says, whereas many, and, uh, whereas many and great things have been delivered unto us by the law and the prophets and the others that have followed in their steps, my grandfather Jesus, having been given himself to the reading of the law and the prophets and the other books of the fathers, and having gained great familiarity therein, was drawn on also himself to write somewhat pertaining to instruction and wisdom, in order that those who love learning and are addicted to these things might make progress much more living according to the law. So there, the, the, his grandfather's writings are distinguished from the canon. So I don't think it's that far of a stretch to say that other writings would be distinguished, especially when we have other definitions from primary sources that define the canon as excluding first Enoch, like that in Qumran, which I'll turn to now. The Qumran community, um, uh, their, their canon excluded First Enoch. In his book, The Old Testament Canon of the New Testament Church, Roger Beckwith lays out the evidence showing that the Qumran community rejected First Enoch in Scripture, specifically in 
rejected to ask scripture, specifically in pages 358 to 366. In their own writings, the Qumran community didn't treat the pseudepigrapha the same way they treated scripture. They, they didn't quote it as much. They quoted it in different ways. They, they didn't refer to it in the same way. Also, according to historical evidence, the Qumran community acknowledged the threefold canon of scripture and the, uh, the numbering of the books of the canon. And they are recorded as grouping their pseudepigrapha in a separate appendix to the canon, indicating that these additional writings were not part of the canon as they saw it. Again, Roger T. Beckwith lays out all of the evidence in his comprehensive book, The Old Testament Canon of the New Testament Church. Enoch uh, Qumran's view of First Enoch can be compared to how some Orthodox Jews view Oral Torah. So yes, they highly regarded it, uh, but and, and they may have thought of it as being divinely revealed, but not on the same level of scripture, just as how Orthodox Jews look at portions of the Oral Torah as being uh, this unbroken chain of tradition going all the way back to Moses, so having some sort of authority, but they don't look at their own Oral Torah as scripture. So it's the same thing with how the Qumran community probably thought of first Enoch. Um, Enoch was simply the correct interpretation of uh, uh, apocalyptic literature as the Qumran community uh, saw it, but not on the same level as scriptures. You mentioned the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. Uh, first, only fragments from the Testaments of Levi and Naphtali were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, not the, not the entire uh, literature. The Testament of Levi does mention writings from Enoch, but that shouldn't surprise us. The Testaments are pseudepigraphal and were composed during the same period as the rest of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and since you know the, the Qumran community came from the very proto-Essene community that wrote the Book of Enoch, that, that shouldn't surprise us that they would appeal to them. And uh, we know that the Qumran community held First Enoch in high regard, so it's no wonder that they referenced their writings. Um, but we also know, as I mentioned, that the Qumran community does, did not consider the pseudepigrapha on the same level as scripture, even though they valued it and found it religiously significant. Uh, you said that the Jews must have took out first Enoch out of the canon. I kind of addressed this earlier, uh, but this is just demonstrably false. It was never part of the Jewish canon. It was never part of the Septuagint, which predated Messiah. Uh, this idea that the Jews reject first Enoch because it supposedly speaks of Christ actually comes from Tertullian, as you say. And even he acknowledges in the quote that you read that the Jews never believed first Enoch was scripture, not that they took it out of the canon and after Christianity. And, you know, Tertullian's reasoning for this uh, is, you know, he he's against the Jews. He has some anti-Semitic views, and he thinks that they had ill intention for rejecting first Enoch, uh, just as they reject other scriptures. But that doesn't mean or entail that they took Isaiah out of the canon, or Jeremiah, which speaks of the Messiah, out of, out of the canon. Um, so I, I just don't think that you can really derive that conclusion from the writings of Tertullian. Um, by the way, you bring up that there are these unique parallels between Scripture and, and First Enoch that aren't found anywhere else. I, I would love to see these parallels. I, I hope that I'd have a chance to respond to them in the time that we have left. Uh, but, you know, you did bring up Revelation and, and how there are unique references to First Enoch in the book of Revelation. These are just a few uh, supposed parallels that I found between Revelation and First Enoch on the internet that people say that 
Revelation was quoting or getting this information from Enoch. I'm just going to list some of these, and maybe these are among your examples, but Revelation 5.11 is said to be is said to come from 1 Enoch 40, when it says that thousands upon thousands and innumerable angels, you know, it, may, it uses that verbiology. Well, John is making a direct reference to Daniel 7.10 uh, here, uh, which also uses that same language. So there's no reason to assume it came from 1 Enoch. Revelation 6.11 is said is often said to come from 1 Enoch 62.15 when it talks about, uh, or hold on, sorry. Um, oh, I lost my place. Oh, Romans 2. 2.11 is said to come from 1 Enoch 62, when it says that God shows no partiality. Well, Paul is referencing Deuteronomy 10.17 here, so there's no reason to assume that it, that it comes from 1 Enoch. 60 seconds, David. Thank you, sir. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.16, uh, Sean, you said in one of your videos that there is no reference anywhere in the entire Old Testament where it talks about unapproachable light. The only other book that we have that uses that verbiage is in First Enoch. Uh, however, the same idea is, uh, uh, is uh, communicated in Ezekiel 1, 29, 28, which describes the glory of light around God's throne. And in Exodus 33, 20 teaches that no one could witness God's full glory and live. So this idea of unapproachable light of God is not exclusive to first Enoch, but is found all through is found also in the Old Testament. And these uh, these ideas are not uh, limited to first Enoch. Um, the ideas, uh, you know, I'm done. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you, brother. And um, all right, brother Sean, it, uh, this will be your uh, this will be your ten minute third argument. And uh, and like I was saying earlier, David, um, I'm I'm taking notes to, to some of the things you've, you've said, but I'm I've got I, I thought we were presenting three times. And so I've got all this other information I'm trying to put forward before I start asking questions about what I thought that's what the cross-examination was for. So it's not like I'm ignoring your questions. I'm just, I'm not there yet. I thought we were, I thought that was a different part of the debate. So, so, okay. Yes. I'm sorry, Adam. Yes. I'm ready when you are. Okay. And your time is starting now. Okay. Thank you, Adam. All right. Uh, thank you. Da thank you, David. And I appreciate the, um, the second argument there from you. Or the third, I should say. Um, real quick, I want to review some. Um, I will get to some of your questions that you mentioned, and I do have a lot of questions, David, for you in our following segments, both our cross examinations and also our, our general discussion with questions. Um, but I just wanted to go over a couple of, of core thematic ideas that are in the book of First Enoch that we only get definitions from or ideas from from the book of Enoch that helps us understand the canon, the modern American canon of 66 that much better. And um, the first one is the origin of demons. We do not get where demons came from, why they plague mankind. Um, we don't get any of that information in any of the apocryphal books or pseudepigraphal books. We only get that in Enoch. So that's for people to consider. We did the rebellion of Satan and the other angels. Okay, so this is, we get Genesis 6, says that they took they took uh, wives of whomever they chose, and they had children by them who were the Nephilim. But it does not say the full extent of how and what they taught them, which was the beginnings of occult practices. So it's more than just saying, oh, the angels took wives. 
you get the the whole practices of the nations that Israel was to be set apart from so they could do the ways of Yahweh, ways of righteousness, and not ways of the occult. Those practices were learned from the fallen angels who rebelled um, during the time of Genesis 6 when they took wives. So you don't get that information to understand why they even started those horrible practices, which are called unrighteousness and wickedness without the book of Enoch. We get the Nephilim, an explanation on who they were, what was it about, what, what happened, which what they became later, which is actually the origin of demons and what, what, how that is even possible. So you get all that explanation. And there's a specific solid reason why in Enoch uh, chapter 10 and also in, in a little bit in 15 as to far as why the Nephilim became the demons. So um, the new moon itself, uh, I'm actually going to address your statement you made earlier about how we the, the Torah follows a calendar of observation and not, and not actual calculation, which I, I'll, I'll address that later segments. But the new moon itself is defined for us in the book of Enoch, and I believe it's in like chapter 77, verse 12. And without that, you don't get the new moon defined for you through scripture. You just get good guessing, which is why there's contention about what the new moon is in the scriptures. So you we may have people say to us, well, the Jews knew what it was. Well, how? If they only had the scriptures to go by, then how did they learn what the new moon was? Because you don't get it actually defined for you. You get it referenced. But the keeping of it needs a definition. You get that in Enoch. Um, Yeshua's teaching in Matthew 22, verses 29 through 30. The Sadducees come to him and ask him, you know, there's a man, uh, a woman that had seven husbands. They all died at the resurrection. Whose wife will she be? Now, this is a trick question. The Sadducees as a group are historically didn't even believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did, or at least some sects of them did. But Yeshua doesn't even respond to their, their false premise. He just says, you're an error, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God for at the resurrection, we may like the angels and you neither marry nor given in marriage. Well, we only get that information of angels, not having wives in the book of Enoch. And it's specifically in, in chapter 15, it's told to them, you were not appointed wives. You were children of heaven. So this is a concept that, that information is not explicitly clearly laid out in the Old Testament writings of the prophets. Where did Yeshua get that information? He's directly teaching from Enoch itself. And in that context of that passage of verse 29, he calls it, you are in error not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. So you claim, and, and we're going to talk about this hopefully later in the cross-examination, but David, you've claimed that Yeshua with your other evidences, you've concluded and, and lumped Yeshua's reference in Luke 24, or also maybe Matthew 23, I'm not sure which one you're trying to say, into the idea of his quotation of explaining the prophets. And you're just assuming that they're not including Enoch as one of those prophets. You also mentioned the blood of Abel. I'm going to get to that as well. Um, and if I don't, remind me during our cross-examination time. But ultimately, uh, there's there's a, some some pretty big ideas in Enoch that are only explained in Enoch that we see the practical application of all throughout the American canon of 66 with no explanation of where it came from or why that's being used. For example, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, Yeshua is explaining about the rich man and Lazarus being in Sheol. It's called Hades in the Greek. It's generically referred to as hell in English, but that's a poor translation. It's literally the Hebrew Sheol in the Greek. It's called Hades. Whereas in the Greek, Gehenna is called the lake of fire. So this is a different place. This is a place that contains both the rich man, Lazarus, separated by a great chasm. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. The rich man is over here in torment. So this idea of this place that they're in is called Hades in the actual, I think it's verse 23 to 24, in the actual parable. Where did Yeshua get the backdrop for that parable? 
He's our Messiah, our, who is the truth, right? The way, the truth, and the life, who, who cannot lie. He's using a theological teaching about an, the, what happens after you die in accordance with a description of Sheol that is only defined and explained by Enoch. And, and almost parallel to tell in Enoch 22 compared to the descriptions of that place in Luke 16. So that's something to consider. Also, we have in Revelation 6 verses 9 through 11, the souls under the altar. You have no clue what's going on there. You have no idea why that's being referenced. People only try to reinterpret that to say, oh, it's just a spiritual metaphor. It's a vision. It's just an allegory. Revelation speaks and you know, metaphors and visions and allegories, and, and it's up for interpretation. And there's lots of interpretations out there about that. Yet, Enoch 47 gives us an incredible breakdown of that exact moment and why they're there in Sheol, just as synonymous with the description of Enoch 22 of what Sheol actually is, and that these souls are waiting for the resurrection, which is why in verse 11 of, of Revelation 6, they're given these robes and told to rest a little longer, and because they're about to be resurrected on the day of the Lord. So this is some ideas, unless you understand the Old Testament to understand even what the day of the Lord is and what the first resurrection event is, then you have no clue if even why they're being told what they're being told, nor do you have a clue of how can they be somehow talking? How can they be cognizant to even be aware of when is the when is Yeshua going to be the avenger of their of their uh, murder? So you get all this broken down for you in Enoch as a as a fundamental understanding. So I think that's really really important for people to understand. Early church fathers who accepted Enoch as scripture: Philo, twenty four BCE, Melito, one seventy, Justin Martyr. 2nd century, Athenagoras, 2nd century, uh, Irenaeus, 3rd century, Clement of Alexandria, 2nd uh, century, Tertullian, 2nd century, Commodianus, 3rd century, Antullius, uh, early 3rd century, and Cassiodorus, which was more like the 5th century. All those guys referenced Enoch and called them holy scriptures. So, as I said before, yes, it is our responsibility to look at people who claim themselves as a religious authority and claims to tell us what we should believe is scripture. And that was the Jewish religious people of the early church of the first century that was persecuting the church of, of Judaism, of whom Paul was his former way of life, as he explains in Galatians 2. He left that to follow Christ. So these guys were claiming they had the authority on what God was saying and was lording themselves over the people as religious leaders and teachers. Yet they were rebuked by the Messiah, the apostles, by Paul, right? They were told to repent because their whole, they were teaching. In fact, John the Baptist and Jesus were claiming repentance everywhere they went, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God because the people and what they were being taught was not the truth of the scriptures. So yes, they held the scriptures up as a blanket, as a cloak, but they actually taught the commandments of men as we so readily know. So no, I, I do not share any authority or give them any authority to tell me what they considered as a valid canon or what was not. I, by the way, I didn't actually say they um, they took Enoch out of the canon. I just said that from all the evidence I gave about them corrupting and changing the text and why, that it yes, they may have not have put Enoch in their canon because of the reason Tertullian even gave, which was that they didn't believe that angels were rebellious, nor did they want anything to point to Christ. So also in that passage that I quoted earlier, Tertullian said, 60 seconds, Sean. Thank you, Adam. Tertullian said that it was published before the flood. So according to his understanding, the book of Enoch was actually written before the flood and passed on to Methuselah down to Noah, which is the claim of Enoch itself. So 
that's where I want to go next, which is how do we do this? Enoch itself makes a lot of claims, fantastical things and some not so fantastical, but ultimately it has prophecy in it. Deuteronomy 13 tells us that if these don't come true, we got big issues. Number one, flood prophecy came true. Number two, 70 weeks prophecy came true, partially came true, still coming true. We can we can go down the timeline and look at it. Number three, day of the Lord prophecies. Match all the canon prophecies of the day of the Lord and they will come true because we believe our Messiah is going to return. Number four, is it fulfilled in the very reason for this debate, which is what Psalm, which is what Enoch 104 tells us. And I'll read just a short bit of it real quick because he says to us in Enoch 104, actually in Enoch 1, verse 2 through 3, Enoch Time, time's up, but you can finish it. Okay. And then in Enoch, so the first chapter, 104th chapter, 108th chapter, he says, this book is for those in the last days. In the 104th chapter, he says, this book, when it's written and passed around, will bring joy to all those who believe it and will be spread abroad to many nations in different languages. Verse, in chapter 108, he says, and another book which Enoch wrote for his son Methuselah, and for those who will come after him who keep the law in the last days. The book itself is fulfilled prophecy. Enoch was a prophet. He passed the prophet's test. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Uh, and thank you both, brothers. And so now we're going we're gonna to shift into our 10-minute cross-examination uh, se section. So David's going to go first. Uh, this is an opportunity where David will uh, be able to uh, ask Sean some questions. And then after that's over, we're going to flip over to Sean, and Sean will have 10 minutes to cross-examine um, David. So... Let me reset my timer here. And um, Brother David, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, floor is yours. All right, hey, thank you, Sean, so much again for engaging me. This has been a very enlightening discussion and, and fun, and I, I hope you feel the same way. Um, do you believe any books that are currently contained in our 66-book canon should not be considered inspired scripture? According to the breakdown I gave it, my first argument, the seven qualifiers the early church fathers used, I would say no. Okay, great. Um, what is the reason you reject the Book of Mormon as inspired scripture? Uh, how, how much time do you got? <laughs> I mean, we let's just start right off the bat. They teach a different creation model. They teach a different afterlife. They teach a different uh, incarnation and a different history of Yeshua. They teach a different adherence to the law. They def diff different definition of Melchizedek. They teach a different conflict with the Bible. It's in conflict with the Bible to, to it, sum it, it up. It's been changed a multitude, multitude of times since its creation 160 years ago. And prophecies have not come true that were made, and they were redacted later. So it, it fails the Deuteronomy 13 test as a whole. And what it teaches is, as far as its teaching, does not meet the muster of Scripture in any level at all. Right. And, and so you would agree, though, that it's in conflict with the Bible, and that's one big reason that it's uh, exclude that we shouldn't consider it Scripture, right? It, it fails the Deuteronomy 13 test, and it conflicts with the Bible in about a dozen different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So how, then, do you reconcile the conflicts between first Enoch and the Bible, for example, the fact that Enoch is deified as a divine messianic figure. Well, that's where we just straight up disagree with the context of the entire book of Enoch. And you, and I would say that you've leaned on modern scholarship of modern men. And you, and I know you want to say even a hundred years ago, people like Lawrence also disagree with R.H. Charles's translation. But again, that's still modernity. That's still modern scholarship. Whereas we look at the entire text of Enoch, and we're and 
I'm not a Greek scholar. No one's ever seen the original Aramaic scroll. This is the big contention. It's privately held and no one can see it or study it. And so modern scholars claim there's a discrepancy and you've picked up that argument and you're running with it. And you claim there's a discrepancy that Enoch has been deified, yet the rest of the context never once. And even when Enoch is actually told what he's going to do, which lines up with the book of Jubilees, Never once is he said to be the one that's deified as the Messiah. Well, no, no, I'm I'm not claiming that there's a discrepancy. I'm claiming that the text says what it says that Enoch is the one that's identified as the Son of Man in seventy one fourteen. All like it, it's right. not a secret. All scholars agree with this. That. They they do not actually agree with that. And this is what I'm saying that the scholars that you're leaning on, and because I I did go to your site and, and it was well written. I read your article and your breakdown and who you lean on for this idea where you're coming to say all scholars agree with all the texts that claim this, but yet you haven't tested that, nor have I. You're leaning on their interpretations, mind you, men that are trying to sell books, on their interpretations of what it should say and how they dislike Enoch and why. So this is why if I were to speak with that scholar, I think he was from Detroit or Michigan. If I were to speak with that scholar who wrote that book, I would love to to go over the text. The claim is that R.H. Charles mistranslated mm -hmm. 7114, which he did. There's no debate about that. There, well, that, <laughs> we wouldn't be talking about it right now if there was no debate about it. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's no debate about what the verse actually says. Every scholar agrees on what the verse actually says. R.H. Uh, uh, Charles amended the text. Okay, so to, this is... To, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of amend... If you, if you look at the, the scholarly work of... R.H. Strolls and, and other people that translated Enoch, they actually give you a key or like a legend of the places where they made changes in the text because there's places that are either corrupted or were not filled in because, as you already admitted as well, except for that, except for the four full Aramaic scrolls, we found fragments in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin in the, amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they've all had to put a translator's interpretation into what you're reading, my brother. This is what I'm not sure you understand how the translation process works because you're just reading a conclusion from men who've already concluded something. Scholars translate the text literally. They render it literally. R.H. Charles amended the text to make it into the third person. There, that, there's no debate about that, but let's... So there's there's been something pretty interesting that I found while doing our show, Honor of Kings, where we've been researching some of these apocryphal books. My next question. Uh, what is your understanding of Romans 3.2 when Paul says... What advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, many scholars think this implies a specific set of authoritative inspired writings, and that the Jews therefore knew which books were scripture and which were not. Do you agree with those scholars? Why or why not? All right. I used to until I read the Septuagint. And then you see that the literal translation of the Urim and the Thummim were called the oracles of God. Multiple places in the Septuagint, but it's changed in the Masoretic. It's just called the Urim and the Thummim, which no one has an actual definition in the lexicons for what those words mean. Yet the Septuagint explains it in nine different passages. One of them means understanding, the other one means truth, and they're called the oracles of God. So that's how they would find out answers from the Father. So Jews have the, the understanding, you're saying that Paul is saying that Jews have 
let's read it again. Paul's listing off three. He's listing things off that the Jews were entrusted with. And one of them was the oracles of God. A lot of people think that just means given prophecy to. Yet we see that's not even consistent because a Midianite or someone that was born north of Midian, Balaam, who was not a Jew, not a descendant of Jacob, also had prophecy given to him and is accredited by numbers. So that interpretation is very subjective, and it's one, again, you're leaning on Judaism for their interpretations of these ideas. Well, I just think that I, I think that the Jews were entrusted with something called the oracles of God. Some translations say the words of God. Later in First uh, Thessalonians, Paul says that the apostles were entrusted with the gospel. They knew what the gospel was, uh, you know, and and so that's why we have the New Testament. But let's move on. Um, should every non-canonical literature that's referenced or quoted in Scripture be considered inspired by God? Yeah, that's, I mean, of course not, right? I mean, we got, that's that's where the testing comes in. Does it pass the Jeremy 13 test? Is it order first priority and secondarily? Does it, any of those qualifiers, those seven guidelines that I listed at the beginning of my arguments, does it even line up to any of those? Okay, so you would a, agree. You would agree that that not everything that that's quoted that 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 criteria alone of being quoted in an inspired work is not is not a, a valid reason to consider something inspired. You would agree with that? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you've got examples like I won't give examples. Actually, I'll stay back. I'll let you keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So another question, as you know. Uh, Christians and Jews, the vast majority throughout history, almost universally disagree with you about whether First Enoch should be inspired scripture. So wait, 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 what? How does that work? I... All right. So, so as you know, Christians and Jews throughout history almost universally disagree with you about whether First Enoch should be considered inspired scripture. So you mean Christians and Jews? Can we? Okay. I'm sorry. I'll let you finish your question. I just want to make sure I heard you right. Okay, so uh, yeah, so Christians and Jews almost universally, including you know the the Ethiopian canon, uh, as I mentioned in my opening statement, um, you know that that that's not we can't really appeal to that as evidence that some Jews considered it canonical or some Christians considered it canonical. But anyway, I'm uh, digressing. But brother, those those are Christian Jews. Right. But as I said in my opening statement, uh, they had a much more liberal and fluid concept of canon than we do. And First Enoch isn't even included in all of their canons. They had multiple canons. It's excluded in some lists. But anyway, uh, so the vast majority, there are exceptions like the Church Fathers, as you mentioned, the vast majority of Christians and Jews throughout history uh, disagree with you about whether First Enoch should be inspired scripture. Why do you think they came to seconds. the wrong conclusion? Uh, thank you. Why do you think that they came to the wrong conclusion and, and you're right? Well, I actually spent a good segment and a half, which is about 15 minutes of my opening arguments, explaining that that bias, that prejudice, it was centered around Christ and it was centered around their teachings from a, a separate religion called Judaism. Yeah, but that doesn't explain the Christians. Why, why, would, why would Christians? To show me, you'd have to show me the Christians are, and that's where I also explain the different canons uh, between the AD 170 canon and then the, the Laodicea canon, and how they're of, over 200 years. I'm getting there, brother. Enoch, though. I'm getting, none of I'm those getting there, brother. I hear you. I'm getting there. So I first addressed the idea of leaning on Judaism for who rejected Messiah, the Law and the Prophets. 
and as well as we're known to be taking stuff out, which we can validate today between the Septuagint and the Masoretic. So so we're, at time. I, oh, we're at time, but I'll go ahead and finish on. Then I also address the idea of Christians making a canon, not even talking about Enoch, just giving you a reference of the way they thought and what they understood about Scripture determined their canon. As one in 8070 tried to remove Hebrews, whereas 200 years later they tried to remove Revelation, but did include Hebrews. You see what I'm saying? So a canon is developed by men according to their understanding of Scripture. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Yet, all the while, in both of those canons, in 170 and 363 AD, you have men that I cited, those seven or eight men who were early church fathers, that did agree that Enoch was Holy Scripture and called it as such, and they had a great influence on the men making those canons of that day. And we don't know the full list that they actually had is the problem. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean and David. That was uh, that was exciting. Ten minutes. So uh, now we're gonna now we're gonna flip roles. And uh, brother Sean, uh, the ten minutes will be uh, your time to ask David some questions, and uh, we will go ahead and get started now. Your time. The time is yours. Okay. Thank you, brother. All right. Thanks, David, as well. Um, can you can you list me? You mentioned that Sirach uh, listed off the you know the three segments that he considered. Um, I guess a canon. Um, can you and you included that as the law, the writings, and then the prophets, and you assumed that Enoch was not included in that list of prophets. Can you give me a specific verse where Sirach defines with a list of books what he considered the prophets? There's no uh, reference to a specific number of books, okay. but I was referring to the the Greek, uh, the prologue to the Greek translation of Ben Sirach, uh, in, wherein his uh, grandson makes the reference to the threefold canon, and he uh, deliberately distinguishes between the the threefold canon, the law, prophets, and writings, and his grandfather's writings, the the other can things, you, can, the other writings. When he deliberately distinguishes the threefold canon. Can you tell me which books he considered the prophets in that statement? Does he say? Does he enunciate? Uh, he doesn't make a specific reference, no. But okay. other sources so it's, it's do. Basic, so you're just saying it's an assumption. You, you're assuming that he's not including Enoch as a prophet in that statement. Um, I am drawing that conclusion from other primary sources. Uh, the, the fact that it's not included in the Septuagint, the fact that the Qumran community yeah. didn't include it in their canon, the fact that Josephus uh, excludes it in his canon. Yeah, you mentioned, speaking of the Qumran community, you mentioned that gentleman whose name was Roger T. Beckwith, and you said according to his research, there was a specific, according to his conclusion from his research, the Qumran community would not have included Enoch as a part of a canon. Um, can does he actually have a citation, or is that just his conclusion from the evidence that he feels leads to that conclusion? Is there well, is there an actual piece of work found at the Dead Sea Scrolls that says we decided to not include these books because of, or we included these books because of, or we discluded Enoch because even though they took the time to bury it in great numbers among all of the manuscripts they buried. Right, right. So. Uh, yeah, Roger T. Beckwith lays out all of the evidence uh, in his book, The Old Testament Canon of the New Testament Church, specifically in pages 358 through 366. So okay. get that book, and he has all the evidence uh, laid out right there. Some of the reasonings he gives is that uh, the, the Qumran community didn't treat, in their own writings, the Qumran community didn't treat the pseudepigrapha the, the same way as they treated scripture proper. And since you've read that book, does he say in that passage you just spent, and I'd love to go check it out, but it, since you read that book, does he say 
that in their own writings, which books they included in what they called a pseudepigrapha? He says that they never uh, yeah, okay. uh, so, tried. So never... it's still an assumption upon his conclusions that you're leaning on is, is what I'm getting Well, I, I'm drawing a conclusion based on that's his right. research and the that's evidence. Right. And that's, that that's your right. That's, you can do that. That's fine. I just want the viewer to understand where you're getting these statements that you're, you're putting forward as authoritative. I encourage so, everyone. Yeah. It's a very hard book to read, but I encourage everyone to read, read that book uh, if you're interested in this topic. It, it's very, very thorough and good. Okay. You, you said that Enoch spoke against what was you said was the Jerusalem Temple service. Can you tell me specifically which verse you're referring to? And it kind of helped the viewer understand that process and what, you, what you're explaining. Oh, sure. Uh, hold on. You want to ask me another question while I'm sure, Well, up? I can just make a couple of statements addressing some of the things you've said previously. You also conflated the pre-flood giants with the post-flood giants while you question the heights given for the two different time periods of giants. And there's a different reasoning both in scriptures of why they would give that as well as, you know, in the book of Enoch. So you've conflated the two. So it, it, I think that was a, a poor conflation. You also said that— um, So conflated. So are you saying the giants were uh, four four hundred— 4,500 feet tall, and then they shrank? Well, that's I've never actually seen a scholar um, talk about the pre-flood giants. I said you conflated, you conflated post-flood giants descriptions with pre-flood giant descriptions. So if we want to talk about the pre-flood giants that are mentioned in Enoch, and they translate this term L's into a measurement standard, I've never seen anyone say 4,000 feet. They've said 450 feet, which would be about a 45-story building, but they've never said 4,000 feet. So, which would be taller than, you know, what? Taller than Mount Everest, right? So I think that, I think you might want to check who scholarly at work is being translated into say what, because there's, I've never seen that before. Yeah, some translations say, uh, you know, 4,500 feet. As I've the, never seen the, that, brother. The, the but you, maybe you can send that to me later. Yeah. yeah, the comparable measurement. But, you know, this is yeah. your time, so I don't want to. It's okay. Just just going to say I've never, ever seen that before. That's a, I've seen 450 feet, and people scoff at that. But I've never seen 4,000 feet. That's Right, that, that's, that's, in would, that, that's in the R.H. Charles. That's in the R.H. Charles translation. No, it's not. No, yeah, it it's, is. Anyway, but the people can look it up. It's fine. All right, you also said jo, um, Josephus. Um, you, you said, was there a citation of a list of books from Josephus that he believed was the canon from 300 years before Christ? Okay, say that again. I'm sorry, brother. I was looking at you, something. You mentioned Josephus, days. whom I had I had to you know re-explain that he was a Jewish priest of the day. So that means he's a religious leader. And you said that he was referencing an established canon that you believed was already closed a few hundred years before Christ. And I'm asking if you have a direct citation for the books that he included in that canon and what those would have been. So a quote from Josephus? Sure. Uh, hold on. Um, Did he list off the books that he considered a canon that you said was already established before Christ? Yes, he does. You want me to read the quote to you? Yeah. That, yeah. That's, I just, I'm interested to hear what he had to say. Okay. So this is what he says in Against Apion. 
uh, 1, 7. Uh, he says, uh, our books, those which are justly believed, are only 22 and contain the record of all time. Of these, five are the books of Moses, the Torah, comprising the laws and the traditional history from the birth of man down to Moses' death. This period falls only a little short of 3,000 years. From the death of Moses down to Artaxerxes, who followed Xerxes, the king of Persia, the prophets after Moses wrote the events of their own times in 13 books. The remaining four books uh, contain hymns to God and precepts for the con conduct of human life. From Artaxerxes down to our own time, the complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of like trust with the earlier records. Basically, he says that there's right there, he says a bunch of other books have been written after the time of Artaxerxes, like the Apocrypha, uh, which, you know, were valuable, but not deemed worthy of like trust with the earlier records, meaning they aren't on the same level as scripture. Okay, so because of... Because of okay, thank you for that. That would include... Ezra and Nehemiah. Are you, is, so you're then saying that Josephus is claiming that Ezra and Nehemiah are not considered scripture? No, I think that Ezra and Nehemiah were included. I know, I know that, well, no, if the time of Artaxerxes would be before Ezra and Nehemiah, my friend. So if you're, if you're taking the authority of Josephus' statement for an established closed canon, then he just excluded two major books, brother. Well, actually, it's one book. Uh, Originally, it's one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, but but uh, I, I would challenge you on that, brother, and and maybe the audience can can do some research into this. But uh, the the entire uh, um, you know story in Esther is that the Jews did not return from exile when they were. Uh, allowed to go back, uh, which was when Ezra and Nehemiah were all returning. So uh, it, it seems like after Artaxerxes, that, that it would that would place um, Esther after Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, thank you. Um, there is, um, let, me, let me ask you something real quick, because we you're leaning heavily on the idea of, again, I, I can't stress this enough, you're leaning heavily on the idea that men who rejected the Messiah comprised a canon and called it authoritative and closed yet these same from the same group of people right so the apostles and including our messiah Yeshua himself were all jewish they their works are then added to this quote-unquote closed canon do you believe thank you Adam. do you believe that the new testament epistles should be considered valid compared to this closed canon that you said was already established yeah yeah because uh paul says that the apostles were entrusted with the gospel in the same way that the jews were entrusted with the words of god so yeah i would absolutely put the new testament on the same um you know inspiration and, and level of authority as the old testament no problem with that okay that's not what i asked though so that's okay i'm gonna go into another quick question um if if the book of Enoch gave an abundance of prophecies that we can see come true and some that are actually literally coming true today because you and I are having this discussion, <laughs> just as Enoch 104 talks about, um, and Enoch 108 verse 1 where it says, in the last days those who keep the law, and that's, that's this third parallel book he wrote for, do you believe that... Time's up, but go ahead and finish your question and go ahead and answer, David. Do you believe that those prophecies uh, which talk about us today, talking about Enoch, spreading Enoch in different languages, 
and those specifically who keep the law like you and I strive to learn and do, do you believe those are prophecies speaking about our times now? I think that, uh, you know, the book of Enoch was, was written to the audience at the time, which I believe was, uh, you know, in the intertestamental period. Um, but, you know, just because there might be prophecies uh, or, you know, things happening today that may seem similar to what we read in, in Enoch, um, I, I don't know. I, I'd have to look at it, but, you know, there's lots of people that claim lots of things. Muslims claim that the Quran contains uh, prophecy that can, that it has been fulfilled. Uh, so, you know, I, I would just have, I'd have to look at the passages. So that'd be interesting though. I'd love to see them. I, I, thank you. Thank you, David. Okay, so now it's time for the four questions, brothers, and you will each have two up to two minutes to answer. Um, two questions are specifically specifically for David. Two questions are specifically for Sean, but you'll each have two minutes to answer it. Um, if you have nothing to say or, or no comment or no need to answer, uh, then you can obviously just pass if you'd like. So each question will be asked. David will go first and Sean will go second. So let's go to the first question, gentlemen brothers excuse me and this was brought up a little bit earlier uh in matthew this and, this, and by the way this is the number one asked question <clears throat> in matthew 22 23 through 32 we see a question from the sadducees that is then answered by messiah he states and this is yeshua speaking this is verse 29 jesus answered and said unto them ye do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of god for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are as the angels of god in heaven david other than enoch 15 which discusses this where this can be answered and again as yeshua rebuked them for not knowing the scriptures where is yeshua pulling this information if it's not from enoch 15 Great question. Uh, very excited to answer this one. Uh, basically, the, the Sadducees, what are they doing? They're trying to ask a trick question to Yeshua. Who will this woman be married to in the resurrection? Their goal was to ridicule the idea of the resurrection in light of uh, Leverite marriage laws in the Torah, which they thought created an impossible dilemma. So Yeshua responds by accusing the Sadducees of knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. First, Yeshua explains the nature of the resurrection, which addresses their dilemma, and then he gives a scriptural response to the fact of the resurrection. So notice that Yeshua actually cites which scriptures he's referring to in verse 32 when he quotes Exodus 3.6. So there's no reason to assume he's alluding to first Enoch when he references, quote, scripture. Also, the idea of our resurrected bodies being like the angels isn't limited to first Enoch, but part of the broader Jewish debate concerning the nature of the resurrection. We see this debate taking place in, in books like 2 Baruch uh, 51.10, for example. It says the same thing, that we're going to be like angels in the resurrection. So Yeshua's definition, as I explained in my opening statement and throughout this debate, was in accordance with the biblical canon of his day, as we saw in Luke 24 and Matthew 23. And he cites the very the, the very scripture that he's referring to when he makes that statement in Exodus three six. No reason to assume he's referring to First Enoch as scripture. Okay. And brother Sean, any uh, response to that same question? If yes. uh, if you sh or, do, you need me to repeat yeah. it, or are you familiar with it? Yes, I'll re I'll I'll take it from here. Thank you so much. Um, so in Matthew twenty two, 
let's look at the the passages, the context of the passages that were just being referenced. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, for they are in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So if I go to Exodus 3, 6, which, David, you claimed that was what he was citing. Um, Exodus 3, 6 says, he also said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Um, do you know how many times that that phrase, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is repeated in the Torah? And there is, I, I, have a, I really struggle to see the correlation of him, of Yeshua, expounding upon his teaching about what angels do at the resurrection, which is what we will be like, by, by using a phrase that's repeated everywhere, and the context of the place where you say he's quoting has nothing to do with the resurrection except the inference of this phrase that's constantly used in the Torah, which is inherently assumed that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be raised from the dead, which is why Yeshua expounds in the end of that verse to say that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. It, there's, I, I really struggle with, with connecting those two. I, I apologize, brother, but, but thank you for your answer. All right, thank you both. Okay, uh, next question. <clears throat> Many seem to trust the contents that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls as they believe this is God preserving his whole word Many fragments of the Book of Enoch were found in this archaeological find. What would be your response to those who trust the findings in the Qumran caves and ultimately believe that Enoch is inspired because of this? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, David first, and, uh, and Sean, you'll have two minutes. Uh, yeah, so I... You know, a, a lot of writings were found in Qumran, uh, stuff that we would never dream of including in the canon. So the, just the fact that something is, um, you know, found among the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, doesn't entail that it, it, we should consider it inspired. Uh, so the thing with Qumran is they, they did highly regard First Enoch um, as, uh, you know, as... They, they highly regarded it. They, they, you know, found it religiously significant. But uh, Beck, Roger T. Beckwith convincingly argues, I think, that the uh, Qumran community uh, did not consider it to be on the same level of script as scripture. And he gives several reasons why that is the case. They, in their own writings, they didn't treat first Enoch the same way as they treated the rest of scripture and there also there are historical references which again Beckwith lays all of this out historical references of the Qumran community uh, attaching their pseudepigrapha to a separate appendix to the threefold canon of scripture so yeah I, I just don't the, the fact that I, I hope that I hope I didn't misunderstand the question but uh, just the fact that something was found in Qumran uh, that that does, uh, doesn't mean anything to me in, in terms of whether or not we should consider it inspired. Okay, thank you. And Sean, you've got uh, two minutes as well. All right. I actually agree with David. I don't think that everything found at Qumran is going to be considered inspired scripture again because there's a, there's a basic litmus test from scripture on how we test writings, whether or not they're divinely inspired. And um, I think that that's, yeah, there's, I've actually 
uh, read several books that were or, or writings, manuscripts that were found at Qumran that I would I see like massive uh, contradictions with the Torah right off the bat. You know, so like I I agree with David. Okay, test, test everything is what I would say. Test it all. You know, you got to test it. That is a test. Test everything. I agree. Um, <clears throat> These, uh, these next two questions, uh, Sean will have first opportunity for up to two minutes, and then uh, Brother David will have up to two minutes to respond as well. So, Sean, in Enoch chapter 40, it is written, and actually, it is written, this is a description of uh, the different, uh, I think, the four angels. Yeah, four angels. And it says, And the fourth, who is set over the repentance unto hope of those who inherit eternal life, is named Phanuel. This is a disturbing description. Uh, this is a this could be a disturbing um, scripture for some believers out there. What is this? What is this scripture saying, and what is it all about? And is this replacing Jesus as um, uh, set over repentance and, and eternal life? The angels that are listed in Enoch, as well as listed in the canon, they all have job functions. So this is something that you know you're just angels were given specific jobs over certain things. Um, I also could do a three-hour debate on the book of jubilees and explain line up verse for verse on how jubilees completely matches torah and as well as passes the deuteronomy 13 test for prophecy uh chapter two of jubilees tells us specifically on day one when all the angels were created which lines up with job 38 that you're going to have they were all given different jobs and tasks so some of them are set over those um, who repent to inherit eternal life in fact this is actually just a different way of wording Hebrews 1.14, and I'll go there just real quick. So Hebrews 1.14 says that, um, speaking about Yeshua being made greater than the angels at his resurrection, and it concludes about the ministry and spirits that it is referring to in the, as angels in this chapter. In verse 14, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit, inherit salvation? So it's exactly the same description of what this... Uh, Fanuel guys being described as his job. They're, angels are real entities that are sent out to help mankind. They have jobs. So this isn't, they're not, you know, not, I mean, just like the guy who saved Peter, the angel that came to him, that was his job. That was his task. He's sent out to help those who are inheriting salvation. Excellent. And um, Brother David, you have two minutes. Uh, yeah, I don't really have anything more to add um, to that. Uh, you know, I, I think Sean probably knows a lot more about what the the content of well he definitely does in, in this regard uh the, the content of what enoch teaches about fanuel and, and all of that i haven't really done a lot of research into it there does seem to be a lot of interesting traditions that have developed around this archangel uh for instance i think uh mormons believe that fanuel is some pre-incarnate joseph smith so it, it gets really extreme uh, <laughs> later on down the road but um yeah, there seems to be a lot of uh, interesting traditions that have developed around this archangel, the same with, with Michael in certain religions. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the archangel Michael is the pre-incarnate uh, Messiah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's lots of ideas and, and uh, traditions that come about in these um, surrounding these angels, and I think First Enoch is just a testament to that. Okay, thank you. All right, and uh, the last question again. We'll go to Sean first, and then to David if he chooses to answer. Um, in Enoch one hundred six, 
and on just side note, depending on which version you read, the chapters may lay out a little different. But in Enoch 106, we get a rather interesting description of the birth of Noah, which seems like it came from a sci-fi movie. And I'll go ahead and read that passage. It's four verses real quick. And after so, this, yeah. And after some days, my son Methuselah took a wife for his son Lamech, and she became pregnant by him and bore a son. And his body was white as snow and red as the blooming of a rose. And the hair of his head and his locks were white as wool, and his eyes were beautiful. And when he opened his eyes, he lighted up the whole house like the sun, and the whole house was very bright. And thereupon he arose in the hands of the midwife, opened his mouth, and conversed with the Lord of Righteousness. Sean, it is to you first, sir. Okay. Um, oh, I'm sorry. And the question is, what's what's this all about? Yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, sorry. All that was prefacing, what is this about, Sean? That's okay. Um, a couple things here. Um, well, just in our modern observation, it sounds like what it's describing was he was born as what we would consider albino. Uh, to have a rose peach colored skin, but then have white flesh and then have eyes that are that seem to stand out as a result of that. Now, I know that it scared Lamech to the point where he thought he was born of an angel. He went to go ask Methuselah, who then went in turn asked Enoch. And I would love to get into that at some point in the future where actually Enoch was and why, because that's also helped really fleshed out in the canon as well. But this is actually um, a reference to something back in Enoch 85, where Enoch, one of his... Uh, visions that Enoch is having is is about a white bull that is born and that's Enoch 85.9 I saw in my sleep that a white bull likewise grow and become a great white bull and from him proceeded many white bulls and they beget, the, they beget many white bulls which resembled them one after the other so this again like I've already said the book of Enoch has three different time periods of prophecies it prophesies right off the bat in chapter one um, it prophesies about the coming of the second advent, the second coming of the Messiah on the day of the Lord to rat out the wicked and establish the kingdom. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God right off the bat. And then it goes on to give prophecies about the um, about Satan and how he'll be locked away and what's going to go on there. And then it prophesies the flood itself. And then it goes on to prophesy over a large swath of, swath of time, over different what it called different weeks. And then it even prophesies about what I just tried to infer earlier, the days that we're in today, about his writings being spread in different languages and people being joyous because of them, because they're being edified by them. Here's just another prophecy that was already given, and then suddenly it was given in a, what's considered a parabolic fashion in Enoch 85. And then we got over here Noah actually being born, which if, Ten Methuselah, seconds, Sean. if Methuselah knew Enoch's parabolic prophecy from Enoch 85, which is a different book, then he would have had a better understanding to not be afraid like Lamech was. That's time. Of, of Noah. Okay. Anything to add? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, obviously Sean is coming at this from the perspective that Enoch is inspired scripture. I, I come at it from the other perspective. And, and so, you know, I don't see anything in, in the Bible and certainly not in Genesis that, that corroborates this uh this fantastic story, uh, you know, it, which it seems weird when you just read it. You know, it, it says that uh, he was born, his face and hair are said to glow white. Uh, so I don't know. It, it's pretty weird. Um, you know, I maybe Sean is right. I, I think that's kind of an ad hoc explanation uh, that he's al albino. Uh, the, the text says that it glowed white. You know, he glowed white. And, uh, you know, that freaked out uh, Lam Lamech. But, Anyway, I don't know. I mean, obviously, 
since I come at it from the perspective that First Enoch is not inspired scripture, you know, I'm I'm free to disagree with with this story uh, on the basis that it that it's not a this sounds weird to me. So, but you know, just because it sounds weird doesn't mean it's 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 not true. There's lots of weird things in the Bible. But anyway, yeah, that's my take. Yeah, yeah, good, good point. Especially uh, just a couple of weeks ago, our Torah portion with the talking donkey, right? <laughs> There's been interesting things. So, um, any case, all right. So that concludes our uh, question and answer session. Thank you both, brothers. That was uh, that was really edifying. So now we're left with uh, our five minute closing statements, and then we're going to conclude uh, this debate. So, okay. And uh, brother David, your uh, five minute closing statement is first, and the floor is yours, brother. Well, thank you again, Adam, and thank you again, Sean, for this uh, awesome discussion. It was really fun um, and uh, I, I hope edifying for the audience. In my closing statement, I'd like to do a quick summary of this debate and see where we've landed. You'll recall from my opening statement my first contention, which was that there is no good reason that First Enoch should be considered inspired scripture. So has Sean given us any good reason to agree with him that First Enoch is inspired scripture? With all due respect to Sean, I don't think that he has. Uh, he he says uh, vaguely that we can't trust the Jews. They're untrustworthy. He appeals to certain sources to support this, like Justin Martyr. Um, and, you know, I, I just don't find those arguments particularly convincing because as many of the debates that Yeshua had with the Pharisees and the, the Jewish leadership of his day, never once was the extent of the canon ever debated. In fact, according to the evidence that we have, uh, Yeshua's uh, concept of scripture seems to be in accordance with uh, their concept of scripture as well. Um he also uh, uh, brought up, you know, a bunch of supposed similarities between First Enoch and Scripture. Unfortunately, we didn't really get a, a chance to go through a lot of those. But uh, I would just say, like, for instance, Jude would have loved to have, have covered Jude. I, I wish we would have had time to uh, go through that. But uh, I'll just say that the fact that there are similarities doesn't prove that the biblical authors we're referencing are quoting First Enoch. But even in instances where it's possible or even likely that the biblical authors were quoting or embracing some of the ideas in First Enoch, it still wouldn't follow that First Enoch is inspired. Uh, we know in Jude and, of course, Second Peter, uh, a really good case can be made that they're pulling this this content from uh, First Enoch. But uh, I don't. I still don't consider that reason why we should consider that inspired. For instance, Dr. Mike Heiser puts it this way. He says, I don't see a compelling reason to embrace Enoch as canonical. It doesn't matter to me that Jude and Peter quote it because the biblical writers quote lots of stuff that we would not even for a moment consider canonical. When the psalmists quote the Baal cycle, I'm not thinking, I wonder if the Baal cycle should be in the canon. No, the fact that something is quoted or something is paraphrased or the content of something is embraced and then re-articulated into a book that is inspired, none of those things are arguments for the canonicity of the thing being utilized or the thing being quoted. Now I know that Sean, uh, you know, he says that there are there's other criteria beyond just it being quoted that he sees as valid uh, for accepting First Enoch as inspired. Um, but you know, I 
that that's just where I disagree. I, I, I just for for several of the reasons I gave, including uh, my argument that uh, the Book of Enoch is in conflict with the Bible, particularly when it comes to the identity of the Messiah. Um, I, I think that the those big contradictions would uh, lend support to my position that we should not consider it inspired. All right, so what about my second contention that there are good reasons that First Enoch should not be considered inspired scripture? Well, I don't really think that Sean has sufficiently addressed my arguments in support of his contention. We've seen that the Messiah himself did not consider First Enoch to be scripture. According to the primary evidence, we've seen that the Yeshua's view of scripture was within the framework of the biblical canon of his day, uh, which we all know excluded First Enoch. By the way, Sean agreed with me that uh, the Jewish people never removed First Enoch from their canon. He actually said that when we were talking about Tertullian earlier. He agreed with me that the, the Jews never removed it, that it was never part of their canon. One minute, so, David. So Yeshua's view of scripture was within the framework of the biblical canon of his day. I mentioned evidence also from the Greek prologue of the wisdom of Sirach, Josephus' canon and against Apion, and the Dead Sea Scrolls to demonstrate this. Uh, we've also seen that the teaching contained in First Enoch is in direct conflict with the teaching contained in scripture, as I mentioned earlier. Most significantly, the authors of First uh, Enoch essentially deify Enoch as a divine Messiah figure. Other conflicts, I think, were unaddressed as well. Um, We've seen that both Christians and Jews nearly universally rejected First Enoch as scripture. This includes the Qumran community, which likely came from the very Jewish movement that wrote First Enoch. So Sean finds himself in an extreme minority, and he has failed to show why his position should be accepted over everyone else's. At the end of the day, I said in my opening statement, First Enoch is pseudepigrapha. There's nothing wrong with reading it or studying it. It's interesting, and it can give us some unique insights. First Enoch can be very valuable, but only if we appreciate it for what it is when we it's make time. it out to be go ahead and finish go and finish great when we make it out to be more than what it is that's when we fall into error so in conclusion it is not inspired scripture and therefore it is not a reliable source for theology and doctrine the bible alone is our final authority thank you thank you david thank you very much all right and brother sean your final or your closing statement five minutes the floor is yours okay thank you adam um just as a final concluding statement uh with this type of format and this type of debate i didn't have time to go line by line into all the theology that enoch teaches which is why i presented and prepared 120 different parallels that i'll make available for people to test and study after this debate um in addition, I also presented the guidelines by which the early Christians decided what was an inspired work. Because remember, they were being persecuted by the same people, the Jewish re religious leaders, not just the Jews, as my, my brother David just put on me. <laughs> not just that I disagree with the Jews, but specifically, my Messiah was a Jew, the apostles were Jews, but I, did, I disagree specifically with the early Jewish leaders during the days before during and after Yeshua, and how they were corrupting the text and not actually obeying the law and the prophets. And so therefore, they are not the people that we want to go to, to actually get our definition of inspired canon, right? Now, here's some guidelines that we can all use that were used by the early church fathers. They don't, I don't agree with everything they taught either. Some of them kept the law of Moses as a part of their discipleship. Some of them didn't. 
Some of them had anti-Semitic stances toward Jews in general. Some of them did not, right? So it just depended on their knowledge of Scripture. But at the same time, they put together some actual guidelines as they developed canons over time. And yes, there's many canons that did not include Enoch, right? And that's fine. That's completely okay. Because again, if you understand church history, you know about the third century or a little bit of the fourth century, Constantine came in. And instead of having the problem of those who followed the way, they just smokescreened them all into a generic religion called Catholicism that was controlled by the Roman Empire. And then they controlled what was actually considered the Bible, which we now, and then I tried to explain the Masoretic text, how that came around the eighth century, which was totally different from the Septuagint, which would have been the scriptures that we see being quoted by the Messiah, whom second century Justin Martyr quoted himself while showing other Jews of his day how their religious leaders were altering those texts to hide truth. Again, I want to just test the books for what they say. And what do they actually say? Does it line up with some of the guidelines that early church fathers held as a part of their inspired work? Was it written by those associated or recognized with as a prophet or an apostle? Yes. Enoch was ref, ref, recognized as an apostle, excuse me, as a prophet by Jude in Jude 14. Is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large regarding its usage and recognition? Why, yes. I'm pretty sure if you don't even agree with the breakdown of whom uh, of whether or not the Jewish religious of the day accepted it, well, many of the Christians afterwards, these guys right here, they all accepted Enoch as inspired scripture. Philo, Melito, Jude, Justin Martyr, Athenagoras, Arianus, Clement, Tertullian, Commodius, all these guys. And this is spanning over 400 years after Christ. In addition, I just presented a case that I feel is pretty solid that Yeshua's teaching from information only found in Enoch, as well as was it consistent with or faithful to previously accepted canonical writings? Well, this is where if you just actually read the book of Enoch, which with respectfully, David, um, you've made several statements and rebuttals in this presentation today that I'm not sure you've actually studied the book. I, I just keep hearing you lean on other people's opinions of the book. But I, I don't know if you yourself actually studied the book of Enoch. But it is extremely faithful to everything in the 66 canon that we have today. So was the, was the writing confirmed by Christ, a prophet or an apostle? I would say Matthew 22 is it confirmed by Christ, yes. Thank you. Thank one, you. <laughs> one minute, Sean. <laughs> and lastly, does the book bear evidence of a higher moral to spiritual values that reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. You just have to read the book of Enoch. It is in favor of keeping the law of God, which there is no higher moral spiritual value. Um, here are the 17, and people can screenshot this if they want, but here are the 17 unique parallels with Enoch and Revelation alone. And all the three that David mentioned earlier are not on this list because those are not unique parallels. These are because I've studied the book. Here's all the different themes that are introduced or definitions of terms used throughout the American Canon 66 that are only given to us in the book of Enoch. And then lastly, I would just say people under, need to read the first five to six chapter verses of Deuteronomy 13 to know how Enoch as a prophet passes the Deuteronomy 13 test. He does in the prophecies within the writings of first Enoch, the flood, the 70 weeks, the days of the Lord, and the fact that we're talking about it and spreading around the world today. As well as, I, I, in final closing, I would just agree with Tertullian that he said Ta nothing about Time, but you can finish. I would just conclude with Tertullian's statement that he says nothing at all must be rejected by us, which pertains to us. And we read that every scripture suitable for edification is divinely inspired. 
And he made this statement speaking about Enoch. Thank you, David, and thank you, Adam, for hosting this for us. Thank you. Hey, thank you both for, for coming. This was uh, this is actually was a lot of fun, and I pray that uh, that the viewers at home um, test both sides and, and, and test everything for yourself. Um, because as we know that we have that none of us here, uh, n not, neither David nor nor Sean nor myself, are, are your teacher. But the the one teacher is the Holy Spirit. So uh, the the Ruach Hakadesh, if you will. Um, so anything that that uh, you learn from tonight, uh, take it to prayer and uh, take it to the Father. Take it to, uh, to Him, and uh, let Him show you what uh, what the truth may be. So, uh, brothers and sisters, thank you for joining us and. Um, Many blessings to you.